Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Beat. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I am fired up, man. I am fired up. SEC Bowl season is now really here. Texas A&M lost last night, but depending on when you're listening to this, lost on Wednesday night in a game that was really, really entertaining. We are not going to recap that today. We will talk about that when we recap all of these bowls with a pod that we record next Tuesday. So we'll have, I'll have a lot of different thoughts on that. But SEC Bowl season is finally here. I felt like the wait was even longer this year, but I'm ready to go. How about you? Same. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, A&M was kind of a goofy bowl game, but I feel like I we didn't get as many goofy bowl games featuring the SEC this year, which is kind of my favorite part of bowl season is like having a goofy bowl game that we also like are talking about as if it's a real game. So we're our one is kind of done and now it's time for like actual serious football. I, I stay tuned for the Citrus Bowl. The Citrus Bowl might also check that box uh, in, in a very different way, which we will get to uh, at the very end. Plan for today. Brad Crawford is going to join us in a bit. We're going to talk uh, about fixing bowl games, transfer portal. Brad is, I was talking to Will beforehand. I was like, man, Brad has gotten even more plugged in over the last three, four years in this business. So great insights from him as always. But we will first have a full bowl preview. Oh, and by the way, we're going to do a little housekeeping uh, at the end, some year end stuff, kind of talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing in the off season, although nothing Nothing crazy or earth shattering as far as changes, at least not yet, but wanted to kind of update everybody on some some potential plans there. Well, let's start with Gator Bowl. We have number 22 Clemson, who is a five point favorite against Kentucky. The over under I have for this one is 11 targets for Jordan Dingle. Who is Jordan Dingle? You might be saying if you are a casual fan, if you're a Kentucky fan, you're not saying this. He was in the portal. And then he wasn't. This is someone who had, and the reason I say 11 targets for Jordan Dingle, he had 11 catches for 198 yards on the season. Mm-hmm. Mark Stoops made the rounds by saying that there was, quote, a lot of money involved as it related to his status with the team. Well, that's where we are in 2023. That's one thing about that- Mark Stoops. Mark Stoops kind of has a little bit of that Lane Kiffin in him where it's like, okay, you lose the game, and it's like, oh, we can't compete. But then whenever it's time to talk about money, it's like, okay, boys, watch out. We got, got a little cheddar coming your way. They ponied up. They, they were able to keep him. Uh, it's pretty wild still to get that kind of transparency from a coach. I said two years ago when the whole Jimbo Fisher thing was was happening that we will eventually get to a place where coaches can talk about this a bit more freely, and I think that time has come, not with everybody, but with a lot of people. It would be so funny if Devin Leary came out in this game and just pepper Jordan Dingle with targets. Just I'm talking like first seven targets of the game, some early 2010s Julio type stuff where it's just we think that you deserve all the attention in the world. And then we're just sitting there like, oh, that's I guess that's why he makes the big bucks. That's that's why they wanted Jordan Dingle on the roster. As for mm-hmm. this game, the, the something that has to give is pretty obvious. Clemson. Hasn't lost since Tyler from Spartanburg got on the horn. Kentucky has one loss to a non-SEC team in the last six seasons. And it was last year when Will Levis opted out of the Music City Bowl against Iowa, a game that was just one of the hardest football games to watch, at least in terms of bowl games in the past few seasons. But I would expect probably not 35 pass attempts from Devin Leary, 35 touches for Ray Davis, maybe a little bit more likely, maybe a little bit more likely. 
listen, he sees that word gator and gator bowl, buddy. He smells blood. Ray Davis gets going. That's a good point, Will. That is a really good point. Yeah, maybe that's all he needs. Maybe get get a little bit healthier too after getting a few weeks to to be able to kind of fix some of those those uh, those bumps and bruises. I, I would expect that they're going to want to empty the tank with him, and especially knowing that Clemson's going to be without Jeremiah Trotter, who opted out of this one. They got a handful of starters that are going to be out. Clemson does. I think it's five, whereas Kentucky should really only be without Keaton Wade, who transferred, hit the portal with his brother. Uh, which we talked about a few weeks ago here. But it's interesting that Vegas is telling us that even with those opt-outs, those portal guys, Clemson is still a five-point favorite. That feels telling. I'm going to go with Clemson um, as the pick to win and cover, despite the fact that if Kentucky wins this game and continues its dominance of non-SEC opponents, does Kentucky just declare itself ACC champs having beaten Clemson and Louisville? Is that – I've heard of crazier things. I wouldn't be against that. When there, there's nothing wrong with declaring yourself the champion of another conference, especially when Florida State, the actual champion of that conference, is basically just no longer a team. Right. Yeah. And it's like, hey, you get you, you get the automatic uh, college football playoff invite that comes with that, so you're just yep. as in as, as FSU. Um, I, I'm going to make – one more dumb point, and then I'm going to actually talk about it. Is there a worse walk in college football than into um, Dabo's office to tell him that you're opting out? Man, it's a good question. Saban's office would still be worse. It would still be tougher. Dabo would give you a whole lot of daggum. He would probably try and lecture you about how you're not thinking clearly, you're not doing what's right for the program. Um, Mm -hmm. whereas Saban, I think would get, he would get to anger quicker than Dabo would or in a different sort of way, Mm -hmm. but that, that you're right. That walk sucks, man. It it sucks. What's worse walking into Dabo's offense as an opt out or portal guy or being a coach that's leaving for a lateral job. Oh man. Yeah. If I'm hitting the portal, I'm sending a text message. I'm not walking to Davo's office. Cause if I have to t- remind him the portal exists on that day, it's a bad day for Davo. But yeah, back, back to the game. I think this is actually a super fun matchup, you know, for that two reasons, for that reason, it's two hard nosed coaches um, that take every game super seriously. There's no, you know, moral victories. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's two teams at kind of an interesting point, right? Because Kentucky was so up and down this year. And I think Clemson was a little bit down then up. Right. So this is kind of one of those games that ulti- it's it's the classic won't m- mean much if you lose it, but could help you a lot or not a lot, but could help you for momentum going into next season um, if you win. But, yeah, I think it's going to be super fun. There's going to be so many accent shots of just like the coaches and like the guys. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fired up about this one, actually. Very rare to have a bowl game with two coaches that have been at their respective programs for more than a decade. I mean, Stoops, I guess, technically this was year 11, but he's been there for for a decade. That's something Mm -hmm. we see very often. Um, So hopefully that makes for at least a somewhat competitive game with uh, a lot of a lot of active offensive players that that were that we're used to seeing for for both of these teams. Cotton Bowl. I am really excited for this one, a game that when people ask me on radio or something, what's the the non playoff game that you're looking forward to watching? I give this answer pretty much every time. Number nine, mm-hmm. Mizzou. Number seven, Ohio State. Ohio State, as of this recording, three-point favorite. 
which that line has moved all over the place. Started off, Ohio wow. State was favored. We did a betting the Bulls episode where Mizzou was the three-point favorite uh, last week when we recorded that, and it has just been wild. And I, I think part of that is because of the Travion Henderson decision, his decision to play in this game. There's still a lot of questions um, with with how we're we're going to look at this Ohio State team. Um, so TBD on that. Oh, by the way, the over-under I have is four and a half references to motivation. I hope it's under. I really do. I, I just hate it. I um, this, this is a pet peeve of mine because it's being so the word motivation is being used in such black and white terms. And that's really not it. I, I, it's just the wrong word to describe the in-game feeling. And what we saw from Texas A&M on Wednesday night is the perfect reminder of that pregame. Opt-outs happen because of guys not being motivated to play on this stage, but transfer portal entries aren't necessarily the byproduct of a lack of desire to play in a bowl game. There's just pressure that teams have on addressing roster needs. And so entering the portal now, instead of waiting a few weeks or a a few months from now, post spring, it it just makes more sense for a lot of these guys. So it's, that's all related to Ohio state with this game, long list of opt-outs slash portal guys but the guys who will be on the field should be plenty motivated because it's a football game and people like to win football games. That's just, I, call me crazy. I think they like to be able to win football games. They just might not have the talent to be able to do so. So we know that Kyle McCord already hit the portal. As of this recording, we do not officially know about Marvin Harrison Jr. Officially, hmm. he sat out of bowl practice. That's about it for Maserati Marv. Maybe we'll have more clearance on that. Uh, later by the time people are listening to this. But as of right now, that's all we know. It's like a What's contract negotiation. He's sitting out for leverage right now. How much would you pay Marvin Harrison Jr. to play in this bowl game? If you're Ohio State? Yeah, if, I mean, you're, if you're Ohio they, State. They feel like they're one of those universities with unlimited resources. We rarely talk about them as one, but they feel like one of those that they just call some people up and it's like, hey, you guys want to see Maserati Bar? We'll give you some box seats. Toss us a couple million. We'll figure it out later. But with it's interesting because when it comes to roster retention, yes, I absolutely think that's the case. As we'll get to with Brad Crawford, though, they they really aren't that in the portal. They they at least don't appear mm-hmm. to be that. So that's maybe that's a bit uh, of a hang up. Um, but I mean, he's a guy that was on the active roster, so maybe he would get a lot of money. Whatever the case, whether he's playing or not, the line currently sits at Ohio State minus three after all that movement. Mizzou's status hasn't really changed a whole lot. Going to be without Hopper, it looks like, plus Rake Straw, Bailey. Bailey's been out for for a while. But outside of those injuries on the defensive side of the ball, not expected to have opt-outs from Mizzou. I still – I really like Mizzou in this matchup. I've liked him at every single point. You could tell me Marvin Harrison Jr. is playing in this one, and I would still be like, yep, I, I think I'm still going to go with Mizzou. Tackling Cody Schrader is easier said than done. It just is. And – I like the idea of Luther Burden III getting a bit healthier and testing this defense as a weapon that is good as that Ohio State defense has been. I don't think they have seen someone that has the skill set quite of Luther Burden III's level. So I think that's going to give them some problems on the back end. And let's not forget like those, those final games that he was playing. I just don't think he was fully right. And, and I think he will be in this game. My eyes have told me, that Mizzou at full strength is the better overall team than Ohio State. And this is another example, as crazy as that sounds, Will, because this is is another example of why playing games actually matters. 
I picked Ohio State to win a national championship in the preseason. And I had Mizzou at six and six. And yet here we are. I'm saying I don't really care who plays for Ohio State. I'm going to pick Mizzou to win this football game. I think they're going to be the better team. Mizzou should be treating this like a Super Bowl. I think they will be. Even if they fall behind early, I think they stick with the ground game. I think they pull off a nice little comeback to be able to win this game. I think Mizzou wins wins outright, despite the fact that I was uh, a bit of an Ohio State apologist for probably too long into the season. Mm-hmm. I can admit that I overlooked some of their offensive flaws, but even if Devin Brown comes out and plays this game like his job is is on the line, which it kind of is in some ways and maybe it isn't in others, I just think Mizzou is a good enough football team to beat Ohio State on that stage. Hey, Connor, if Ohio State had Brady Cook, would they have been favorites to win a national championship? That's a great question, Will. <laughs> I, I don't think they would have been favorites to win a national championship. Would they have had a better chance to beat Michigan? Yeah. Could they oh, have yeah. gone into Ann Arbor and won that football game? Yeah. I think Brady Cook's a better quarterback than Kyle McCord. At this stage of Kyle McCord's career and the things that they, they could have used him to do, yeah, I I do. I, that's that's not something I, I thought I would say preseason either, but it's kind of hard to argue with that. There there were definitely some throws left out there. They just did not have necessarily that that passing game firepower that you come to expect from Ohio State. They had injuries in the backfield too that, that definitely impacted them, but this was such a different Ohio State type team that Brady Cook probably would have given them a better chance to be able to compete for a national championship. I'm not saying that they would have won it all, but I, yeah. I think I think Ohio State could be in the playoff right now if they had Brady Cook. Man, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that in itself just goes to show you kind of, you know, <laughs> this is, I mean, think about saying this. If you're a Mizzou fan, you got to be jumping for joy right now because think about saying this in the in the preseason, which is that this is a testament to what drink is done. You know, yeah. Cook has been his guy. We're sitting here looking at a matchup with Ohio State where even if they had their guy, it would be a clear and present W for Drink and his guy and his system and his new offensive coordinator and what they built this season. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, without McCord, you know, it's not like he was a great asset. It's not like losing Jaden Daniels or something. But, you know, you look at these teams, it's like that's the culture that Mizzou has brought. You know, Cody Schrader is a guy who, I mean, there's more tread on the tires there that I've seen in running back since, I don't know, Roundtree. We've always joked about that. But that's the that's the nightmare is to get guys like Cook, guys like Schrader who – are kind of lower rated guys. They're not as worried about, you know, optics, the NFL, stuff like that. And I mean, it's like, you're going to think he's going to get every ounce of juice out of a guy like Schrader who runs so angry. Like that's the complete nightmare of a guy you want to see at a bowl game. There's a guy on his last game who's already made his, his, uh, his kind of legacy at the thing, but a win against Ohio state would change everything for this program. Because then you're looking at, I mean, the amount of teams that can in a bowl game, not in a random regular season game, you know, not like Purdue or whatever that can jump up and just beat Ohio state when Ohio state knows they have to play them is such a short list over the last 15, 20 years. And Mizzou can now look at themselves and say, you know, we actually kind of feel good about ourselves here. We kind of feel good about the guys we have. We feel good about what we're building here and the culture we have. And and Ohio state's kind of the opposite. You know, they're a little bit of bad vibes. They got three straight losses to Michigan quarterbacks in the portal, all that stuff going on. So this is, you're right. As I hear you kind of break this down, it's like, this is a fascinating matchup because on, on one hand, you know, you got kind of an apathetic Ohio State team and the other team, it's like, man, if they win this, this could be the biggest bowl win outside of the playoff of the season because now you can go to recruits and say, look, we can beat Ohio State. 
we can beat anybody. We, you know, we're not scared of Georgia. We played them close. I think this is actually a huge game for drinking again. It's a nightmare for Ryan Day, who's just trying to whimper out of the season, and he's thinking about next year. When I tweeted out that Ole Miss was the Power Five Ultimate Groove uh, Good Vibes team this offseason, and that USF was the Group of Five Ultimate Good Vibes team this offseason, I had a couple people chirp me, Peter Burns included, and say add Mizzou to this list after they beat Ohio state. I probably should have waited on that. And it's, it's interesting because usually I think of ultimate good vibes team as a team that looks like it's on the rise and looks like it's about to do something even better than what it did the season before. And we have a lot of reasons to believe in the off season. That's why I kept bringing up Florida state as the ultimate good vibes team, which was confirmed and now Florida state, ironically enough, is kind of the ultimate bad vibes team, but that's for some circumstances outside of their control. And Mm -hmm. Mizzou is interesting because I do think that coming back next year with the roster that they could end up having, if they make a couple of portal moves here and there to address some needs, and as long as they don't get those coordinators poached, we're going to be talking about a team that maybe could be starting as a, a top five SEC team coming into next season, which is crazy to think about as we look at a conference that's adding the likes of Oklahoma and Texas. But this game could help shape that perspective in a pretty significant way. And I, I think that there is so much to be gained for Mizzou. And it's not to say that if they lose this, that they're a fraud or, or, or anything like that, because this year is, has still been such a great testament to what Drink has done and quieting a lot of the noise about whether or not he's the guy. But mm-hmm. it, it is still impressive that this, this team is sitting in this spot where there are people like us who have watched them that feel confident that they can stack up against a team with the talent that Ohio State has, even with those those transfer portal opt-out guys that, that the Buckeyes will be dealing with uh, in this game. But can't wait for this one. Should be really good. Yeah. And I, I will say this is the classic like kind of win-win for Mizzou because it's like even if you do lose this game, it's like, yep, you lost to Ohio State. Who among us? <laughs> and so right. it's kind of – it's this bowl matchup is already kind of a dub unless they get completely blown out by a backup. Like unless it's like a 30, 40-point loss. But even – eh. Bowl season, we're focused on a playoff run next year. We're really not worried about it. So, and then, you know, if you're Ohio State, if you win, it's like, yeah, I mean, you guys beat Mizzou, like, congrats or whatever. It's not like it's a program changing win for them. So, yeah, as a matchup, I love this so much for Mizzou, just narrative wise. And I'm really excited for this one. I think that would be kind of a bummer is if it's a, a 2021 Ole Miss type spot where the Matt Corral gets hurt in yeah. the first quarter. Uh, and maybe it's different because we're, I mean, assuming, barring something crazy, Brady Cook. The assumption is that he's going to be coming back. And so it, it'd be different than Corral, who is obviously going to be off to the NFL. Um, and that was going to be a really different Ole Miss team. But that's about the only way this can be kind of a buzzkill type day for for Mizzou. But I, I don't think that'll be the case. I think they win this game. Peach Bowl. Also excited for this one because of the amount of times I spent comparing Penn State and Ole Miss. Ole Miss coming in at number 11, Penn State at number 10. Penn State is a four and a half point favorite. The over-under I have is 69 Quinshawn Judkins rushing yards. Why 69? Why you bring that number up, Connor? Hmm. Herbert. Hmm. Um, Penn State is number one in America. (laughs) Penn State is number one in America, allowing just 69 rushing yards per game. Also of note. Michigan handed the ball off 32 consecutive times in Happy Valley with playoff hopes on the line, and it was a very successful strategy. Michigan ran for 227 yards that day. To say that Penn State is a 
lock to shut down Judkins is unfair, especially with Manny Diaz off to do. No Chop mm-hmm. Robinson playing in this one after he opted out. So I don't necessarily think it's a lock that the Penn State defense locks up. I use lock twice in the sentence. Locks up Quinchon Judkins and this ground attack. This should this could still be some tough sledding for Ole Miss, but a lot of moving pieces on that Penn State side. And Ole Miss, not expected to have a whole lot of significant absences other than Cedric Johnson or Spencer Sanders, who is academically ineligible for this one. What a weird year it's been for the Oklahoma State transfer. And I was watching when I was watching that Texas A&M bowl game. I was thinking to myself, it's strange that Spencer Sanders isn't on that Oklahoma State sideline playing in this game. And instead, we've got these moon balls that are being thrown by Bowman. But uh, <laughs> very odd to see his career play out the way that it did down the stretch. Nonetheless, it is no secret whatsoever where I stand on this game. As much as it terrifies me to have faith in Lane, knowing that he is now 2-21 and against Power 5 teams who have won at least nine regular season games, I'll take Lane in a close game against James Franklin, even though Franklin is the one that's got way more experience in this spot, having won each of his last three New Year's Six Bowl games. Lane has won New Year's Six Bowl appearance as a head coach, and it was the game that we were just talking about, the Sugar Bowl loss against Baylor where Corral goes out in the first quarter. Probably wouldn't win that game. It didn't look like they were going to win that game, even if Corral had stayed healthy, but it was still really early. This is the biggest postseason game of Lane's career as a head coach. I, I I really think it is. You're you're trying to continue to establish that you are building all of this momentum for the offseason and it's all going to be heading into next year. And this is really starting to feel like it's turning in the right direction. Still no official word on what Jackson Dart is going to be doing next year. Sounds like he's still weighing his options with that. But nonetheless, he's going to be playing in this game. Ole Miss has never won 11 games in a season, Will. They've got an opportunity mm. to be able to do that. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. That is up for grabs, as is the title of trendiest way too early playoff team. That's what Ole Miss will be, probably. This should be a really, really good matchup. I'm curious if Lane can win a, a low-scoring affair and if this is one of those reminders of James Franklin, uh, as good of a coach as he is in the eyes of many, there are still just those moments that, that that just leave you frustrated. And if this game comes down to that, I will, I will trust Lane. I wonder if they're like James Franklin stands on Twitter. Like, I wonder who's going to bat for James Franklin at this point. Cause like, it's not like, it's not like he's a cool guy. That's the thing. Like if he was just kind of a, a coward in these big games, but he was cool. It would be like, Oh yeah, that's our guy. We like him. But anyway, so that related to my point is man, Manny Diaz is just the apex guy that was just ruined by the Miami stink. I mean, he has been, you know, a great leader, a great motivator, a really good recruiter at every stop. And then he goes to Miami and it's just like his career just got hit by a train and everyone was blaming him. And you kind of look at where they've been since then. It's like, are they really even better? Like they blamed all their, their point, their, their problems on him. And so, you know, where I'm going with that is this old Miss offense is so interesting, right? And we've talked about it over the years. This is a pretty apex lane kept offense, which is that you think they're this deep passing game, but in reality, they're a running team. Well, I love that you started off with that because to defend them without Manny Diaz in a bowl game is a little bit of a nightmare because first you got to stop Judkins, which when Judkins has been healthy, he's been, you know, let's say 80% of the player he was last year, which is a pretty unstoppable guy who is going to bang into you over and over and over again. But then even if you can stop him, 
with Manny Diaz or without Manny Diaz, you still have all these other options. You know, you have Jackson Dart, you have, and at this point, Jackson Dart is, this is crazy to say, a mature veteran quarterback playing for Lane Kiffin. You've kind of seen these guys grow up together, right? Like, you know, they got there and he was this floppy haired guy from like USC. And now it seems like he's getting way better at making the plays with his legs, uh, checking down, you know, not always making the home run. So this offense is a real nightmare to play in a bowl game for that reason, because if they had their way, they might just run all over you with Judkins, you know? And if you stop that, they're like, all right, whatever, we'll throw it. We don't care. And so point being like, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Like, I, I think that vibes wise, you know, we've talked about the portal additions that Lane Kiffin is making and like happy, you know, in the zone, Lane Kiffins is a really, really good coach. And I feel like that's where he's at. He has a lot to, you know, show off. And I think he's also kind of starting to embrace that, like always recruiting mentality, which he was always good for the soundbite. He was always good for that. But I think that's where it's starting to click for him lately is like, oh, everything you do could be used for recruiting. And so a bowl game like this, he's the type of guy who is worried about, or not worried about, but is thinking about PR, thinking about how things are presenting. Whereas James Franklin is the opposite. He has never cared about optics. He has never cared about, uh, you know, making people happy, impressing recruits, stuff like that. So, yeah, a game like this where you just see on the other sideline. I mean, think about the sideline. Let's just imagine, regardless almost, the sidelines of this game. Jim Franklin's going to be sitting there, arms crossed, staring, da-da-da. Lane Kiffin, even if he's losing, is just going to be like, ah, all right, man, whatever, like da-da-da-da. It's just the vibes are going to be so tense on one side and so loose and free on the other side. So I hate to be a, a, a fan on that, but I just I would love to be on the sideline for this one. I meant to ask Gary Stokin about this, but are there any special arrangements to have the basketball hoop on the sideline for Ole Miss? I, that might change the spread of this one. It could. <laughs> it very well could. That Penn State would not have would not have anything quite like that. It feels like a dog Penn State a lot. And I really gosh, I felt like I was such a Penn State defender during during the the Trace McSorley years, just because I love Trace McSorley and obviously the Moorhead you stuff. You were, and they were really fun back then. They were a really fun team to watch with Saquon and Joe Moorhead and those boys. And Godwin, gosh, people forget how good Godwin was at Penn State too. And then when he got to the NFL and he was like a mid-round pick, people were like, who is this guy? I, I don't know why this surprises you. If, you. if you watch any Penn State football the last two years, this guy's been uh, a revelation. But yeah, look, I, I just can't get on board with the idea of, of Penn State dominating this one from from start to finish in the way that some Penn State fans expect. And I do think there are some people that that defend James Franklin and they'll say like, all right, it's just a Michigan Ohio State thing with his with his struggles. And it's not because you're I mean, the fact I, I brought it up earlier, the fact that he's been as good as he's been in in New Year's Six Bowl games tells you this isn't total fraud watch or, or anything like that. But I, I do think that that this should set up for a, a nice spot for Ole Miss to be able to do some things offensively, even if it isn't you know a thirty-five point effort on the offensive side of the ball. I, I think that we're going to see Ole Miss come out with a lot of a lot to prove, and they're able to to win a close game. And you know, okay. to not I don't mean to do the motivation thing, you know, and I'm really trying to stay away from that. But it's like to your point, what are the stakes of this, one, right? You know. No matter what, even if they were to blow out Ole Miss, it doesn't really change where Penn State is as a program, right? With Ole Miss, like you said, they're playing for their first season ever for the 11 wins. I mean, that's almost, it's not quite statue territory, but you're kind of on the path for Lane Kiffin. And you got to start wondering now that he's got the extension. It's like, he's looking pretty happy over there. You know what I'm saying? He's starting to really check off some of those all-time Ole Miss boxes. Lane Kiffin, best coach in Ole Miss history. Some people are saying it's up for grabs in, in the Peach Bowl. Probably not. Probably not. I'd have to do a really uh, in-depth breakdown of that to give a definitive answer. But, yeah, he's certainly heading in the right direction. 
Music Are we going to have like some Houston nut defenders in our comments? That's the question. Uh, <laughs> this hive the, on Twitter. Those, I wonder what they're like. <laughs> those might just get a straight mute if, if we do that. Yeah, we're, we're not we're not ready to deal with those people. Not not right now. Let's talk about the Music City Bowl. Auburn's a six and a half point favorite against Maryland. The over under I have is two and a half references to Tungavaloa. Talia Tungavaloa is not playing in this game. Otherwise, it'd be way more than two and a half. He opted out. I've said that I think he's going to be one of those guys who's going to go to the NFL, hold a clipboard, get into some game as a backup, electrify for a bit, fire up a home crowd, only to then make some horrendous throws a week or two later and then remind everyone why he's not a franchise guy. Some Tommy DeVito type vibes, maybe. Um, you can see something like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm bummed that he's not playing in this one because he would make it a lot more interesting to watch. The line has shifted even more in Auburn's favor, despite the fact that the Tigers are going to be without a handful of starters on defense. But Maryland's secondary could be the most depleted unit in this game. Dare I say, Will, Auburn might be set up well to complete some forward passes. Watch out now. I don't want, I don't want to get too ambitious here, but I, I, I think they will be able to throw the football a little bit. Now, I'm not saying they're, they're going to get wild and throw for 200 yards or something like that, but, uh, man, th there should be some opportunities there for Peyton Thorne, who has faced Maryland twice, in case you were wondering, split those games. So this one is going to dictate whether or not Peyton Thorne is considered a Maryland killer. Um, yeah, nobody's going to care about that at all. It feels like at some point we will get a bowl game that ends with a tie. It does. Teams will opt out of finishing a game, right? It'll be the, what was it, like the 2001 MLB All-Star game, and Bud Selig will just step in and say, it's over. We're going to get that. We are. But it has to be the Cheez-It King. Yeah, Probably. <laughs> I think he's so. Gonna be, it's it's going to be like with that scene from Gladiator where he like puts his thumb up. <laughs> they're all just yep. like, we're done here. I, look, I, I, I wouldn't hate a tie. I wouldn't hate a tie. It would be interesting. I, this game could have some tie vibes. It, it could. Probably not, but never say never. Hugh Freeze is sneaky good in bowl games. He's won four straight. I think he makes it five. I don't think a tie happens. Speaking of streaks, the SEC has lost the Music City Bowl in three consecutive seasons and is two and six mm. in the playoff era. And the coaches responsible for Music City Bowl wins are Butch Jones and Gus Melzon. So interesting. Don't tell that one to Joe Klatt. Uh, is the SEC yeah. over with? Are they done? Is the dynasty done? They have not won the Music City Bowl. If they can't win in Nashville, what does it really say about the conference as a whole? I mean, mm -hmm. you held your media days there this past year. If you're letting Big Ten teams come in and win that game on a consistent basis, what are we really talking about with, with the SEC? No, I just thought that was interesting because I, like, I, I, for whatever reason, I was one, my, one of my first thoughts of the Music City Bowl was that Tennessee win when they just dominated Nebraska end of the 2016 season. A Nebraska team that got off to such a great start. I think they were like 7-0 and or something like that. And then Tennessee just dropped the hammer on them. And that game felt like an absolute blowout. But, yeah, has not been a game that has gone the SEC's way the last few years. I would I would expect Auburn is, is still able to come out and win this one. Hopefully we get some points, but I'm feeling like this is going to be a, a low-scoring uh, type game that Auburn's able to win. Any other thoughts on that one? Oh, Hugh yeah. Freeze, um, momentum. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you know, Auburn fans just got to be happy that they have a coach who like might know how to coach a bowl game. It's going to be the first time in like 15 years for them. So a coach that gets better with bowl preparation, crazy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, you know, I'm not going to talk about momentum. This passing offense and what Hugh Freeze is building it into is going to be one of the, the biggest enigmas. And I mean, okay, here's the question. Do you think the offense is behind schedule at this point? Yes. Yes, I do. Because there there were moments in which it was kind of promising. And we said, whoa, look, look, they're able to actually throw forward passes against Arkansas. And look, look what they did on the road in an SEC atmosphere. And, and oh, man, they had Bama on the ropes. And, oh, look what they did against Georgia, even though they had a one-dimensional offense. They did not run the offense that Hugh Freeze wants to run this year. They, they did yep. not have the personnel to be able to do that. And there is hope that when you sign two five-star true freshman receivers that you can flip that switch. Uh, easier said than done. They're, they're making move. They're going to try and add some receivers in the portal as well. I, I would expect that that's going to continue. Um, but go ask Kentucky about that, about relying a lot on true freshman receivers who are blue chip guys. It's just not as easy when they're getting a full set of reps. It's different when you got, one, you know, a true freshman receiver can obviously pop in this conference, but when you're relying on that those guys heavily, it's a little bit difficult and you could put yourself in some tough spots. I don't think the offense got to the level that Hugh Freeze hoped it would. But if you win this game, you dominate that Maryland secondary that, like I said, is is depleted. You have a, a 30 or a 40 point day or something like that. And you have a winning record, something that Auburn hasn't had the last two seasons, then yeah, maybe it changes kind of how we're talking about this team. Um, and we move on from the fact that New Mexico State got $1.7 million to come into Jordan-Hare and just, you know, whoop that you-know-what. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, to, to your point, like, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, I think that Hugh Freeze tried to get in there and implement a scheme. And, you know, he said it himself. Maybe he was a little bit rusty on the scheme. But it, it was a personnel problem. And, I mean, midseason – you obviously can't fix that. You know, you got the guys you got, and if you think you're going to lose guys to injuries, drama, whatever. So I think this is this bowl game is actually going to be a great inflection point, and uh, we will probably end up talking about this season and this bowl game a couple of times going forward because, you know, this is the last of the Brian Harson stench at Auburn, right? As far as next year, you're going to get the, the five-star receivers in. You're going to start building this new offense. But – you know, this could be kind of the beginning of that with, as you talked about, a banged up secondary. You can kind of get a little bit of that, um, like the positive vibes going. And so, yeah, I'm just overall very fascinated by this Auburn team because if it is a personal issue, they've almost flipped that in one offseason. We still have a couple of portal moves potentially out there. We'll see. Um, but, yeah, this is going to be like like you got to wonder. I don't want to get into this whole thing like now, obviously, but got to wonder like, you know, what goes into these bowl matchups and how teams are, are matched up. But, you know, if you're Auburn, you're kind of licking your chops going – you know, hopefully we can get out of this one, get a win, start thinking about next year because Auburn football's really exciting. And I mean, I don't know if I don't think Arson was ever exciting. So I think this is the first time to actually really get excited for Auburn football, like in a preseason hype kind of way in a while. Yeah, and to 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 feel just to feel good heading into an offseason. It's yeah. just not an easy thing to do. It's one thing to feel good and to feel optimistic long term because you've made a coaching change like what has happened what i mean after 2020 obviously and then after 2022 but it's different to come off of a of a nice little victory and feel like okay we've 
we've done some things. We obviously have room, significant room to improve, but at least we ended that way. That is very much on the table. And they're a team that should benefit from those bowl practices. I don't yep. think everybody is in a spot where they value those, but Auburn is a team that that needs those bowl practices as you talk about trying to establish the the offensive identity and what they're they're trying to do moving forward. Should be a nice opportunity for them. Orange Bowl. <sighs> Man, it's rough. It's rough, Will. Number six, Georgia. Have they called you yet to play in this one? Uh, I've gotten I've gotten a, a, a little bit of like a, a a feeler. I don't want to say I've gotten an offer to play in this game, but just a, hey, in case of emergency, are you available mm-hmm. to drive down uh, to Miami for this game? I have not responded. I left that text unread. I, I didn't feel it was my place to step in and play in this game. But who knows? You know, crazier things have happened. George is a 19 and a half point favorite against the Florida state team that uh, is inevitably going to have walk-ons or, or something. The over-under I have is five walk-ons who record either a rush, a catch or a tackle. Yeah. <laughs> Rough. The Rudy there, bowl. Oh my God. It might be there. There's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 guys missing from this game as a result of, transfer portal, injury, opt-outs, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think Carson Beck and Lab McConkie are playing. I, I think the Georgia secondary should be out there. Other than that, Lab Will. McConkie's playing. I love that guy so much. Why is he playing? <laughs> He's so I, you know, cool. Uh, Lad, Lad's had a little bit of a of a frustrating year with injuries and somebody that I think has some NFL money to be able to make if that's the decision yeah. he chooses. Maybe he's going to choose to come back. We don't officially know just yet. But let, let's be honest. It, it sucks that this is happening. It, it sucks. Yeah. It is happening to the two top-ranked teams outside of the college football playoff. This is supposed to be, in theory, the most important non-playoff game. So... For for everyone saying saying all of that, which I, I, I get, know that this game would obviously have different stakes next year. This wouldn't necessarily be this game in which we have all this roster turnover and we're talking about potential walk-ons playing in this game. Not that walk-ons are bad, but you get what I'm saying. It just sucks that it turns into this because I like watching really good teams play football. And if this matchup were any other time of the year, any other time of the year, it would be just that. Even if we mm-hmm. knew that Florida State was going to have a backup quarterback, and we were talking about this game at the end of the regular season, it would still be considered an awesome football game because of what we would be looking at with Florida State on the outside with those playmakers, and you would still have a Jared First playing in this game. And instead, you're going to be sitting there like Leonardo DiCaprio in that gif if you see a name that you recognize on Florida State. Oh, my God, I know that guy. I know that guy. I remember uh, on three. I remember his recruit. That's where he's at. Yeah, I tweeted some negative things at him like three years ago. Oh, that good for him. He caught a pass. Mm-hmm. The, the line is telling. I think it started around two touchdowns in favor of Georgia. And that was when we thought that Tay Rodemaker would be playing in this one. He isn't. Brock Glenn is playing. No idea who Brock Glenn is throwing passes to, who he's going to hand the ball off to. If you are waiting on FSU to lose, so you can say that the Knoll should have been or shouldn't have been in the playoff. Like if that's if that's your take of oh FSU loses forty five to fourteen and this is why they shouldn't have been in the playoff. You're just telling on yourself that you haven't been paying attention. That's such a dumb take. I always hate that post bowl game take to justify the playoff stuff. 
And same thing with Georgia. If Georgia wins this game by a billion points, that's not going to convince me, oh, Georgia was absolutely worthy of being considered one of the best four teams in the country. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's just not as simple as that. Don't base it just on the bowl game, on the bowl game reaction. Do I think Georgia would beat multiple teams in the current college football playoff field? Yes. Yes, I do. But this isn't this don't die on this hill. Just don't die on this hill. Cause I remember a certain Ohio state writer that I don't like because he is such a Homer and he doesn't realize that he's a Homer. He's been doing this for, for a little bit. And it's, it's so much worse when they're like, it's one thing if, for example, like 11 Warriors is a fan site that I've been following for eight years because I think they produce really good content. They kind of lean into who they are with their coverage of Ohio State, and they do an awesome job. I, I really think that. But some of these guys that, that that are on the beat that just don't even realize how big of homers they are, it's, it's mm-hmm. freaking maddening to, to watch. But, yeah, like 2017, he kept arguing that a two-loss Ohio State team that got dismantled by Iowa deserved to be in the playoff. And then when the Buckeyes beat USC in the bowl game, he was like, see, I told you so. Buddy, that's not how any of this works. It's not. Yeah, maybe in 2007, dude. Um, yeah, like maybe I mean, if Ohio State had lost by one instead of 31, I would have I would have heard him out. I would have heard him out. But that team suffered loss number two by 31 points to Iowa. What, to a team this that conversation. was more shocked than any of us and they got to 31 points, period. <laughs> anyway, Some more times, so, Will. Some more times. <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this this represents a couple of interesting things, right? It's really, it's the death of uh, pride in bowl games, exactly like what you said. And it's, you know, at any other point in the season or, I mean, nearly any other season, um, you know, this would be a great bowl game. It's sad to watch. I mean, just a, uh, a visage of you know, what college football has become, which is that this is a game that when it was announced, you thought, oh, these teams both have a lot to play for. And then about two days later, three days later, you realize, nah, not both of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, you got to wonder about the tactical, you know, situation for Mike Norvell. I mean, because, I mean, we saw what happened in the Cotton Bowl with Dan Mullen, where he was pretty much just like, yeah, I don't care about this one. Um, but if you're Mike Norvell, I mean, you kind of just need to not care about this one. I mean, that was kind of the only example I can think of a team just straight up being like, oh, we don't got, we're not doing this. We don't care. And, you know, I feel like this is almost one where if you, if you truly put your whole head into it and say, we're going to get revenge, we're going to beat Georgia, we're bold and more material, we're going to go beat Kirby Smart, and then you lose badly, which you likely will because you don't have the talent right now, it almost makes it worse. So it's, it's hard tactically to be where Norvell's at um, because I, I think he's a great coach, and I think he, he's undefeated, which Kirby Smart isn't. I think so at the end of the day, this is going to be, you know, if you're an FSU hater, if you're a Florida fan, Miami fan, you know, outside looking at the playoffs, you're going to say, oh, you know, Norvell doesn't develop talent, his cultures, whatever, you know, he needs to recruit because that's why all these guys are leaving. They're all mercenaries. And it's unfair. It's it's really unfair because at the end of the, t- the day, you know, this is a team that fully deserved to make the playoff that all, all these guys would be playing in, you know. So it's just so, Doug, we always talk about sliding doors moments where it's like this could have been a team that maybe they win a playoff game a la TCU and they really all go out there and they give that, you know, Spartan mentality. But now we're getting the exact opposite vibe from them where it looks like a team that is disinterested and like I said I don't blame them if the college football committee tells them they don't matter then it kind of is smarter to just move on to next season um because you know they've been told your season doesn't matter and there's nothing to play for and they're not trying to you know claim a national championship or do anything this year so um it's going to be really interesting to see how Mike Norville deals with such a unique challenge not only in this game but kind of going forward because you can recruit off the undefeated season you can recruit off things you've done but the the 
last image you have of this team is them all dejected and Jordan Travis getting injured. So this is a, a situation that I've never seen a coach in before and, and a coach that I was sure was a great coach. So it's going to be one of the most gripping pieces of theater going forward. Florida State is the most over it team program in college football right now in every yep. way. They're just over it. They're, they're yep. over being left out of the playoff field. They're over their place in the ACC with this grant of rights deal and this lawsuit that is now mm -hmm. going to uh, have a bunch of different, uh, I think, layers to it from the Florida State side as to why this is just an unfair agreement that they signed on for when they were just trying to get continuity in 2016 when they're you know, trying to get ahead of the, the TV rights things and, and just trying to, to make sure that they were going to be fine and not left out in the cold. I think it's just such a, a strange dynamic. And I don't know how much of that is going to be evident in this game, but this, this game is weird on every single level. It just is. Yeah. It, it's, and it's a bummer that it's this weird and that we could see a Georgia team really take control and win this game in such a convincing fashion that makes us forget what this Florida State run was. And I, I was the one who, look, I criticized Florida State a lot, a lot during the Willie mm -hmm. Taggart, early Mike Norvell years. And I, I always mocked the, the do something hashtag where they Jeez, had the Martin Luther King graphic. Oh my, oh. The Martin Luther, Martin Luther King tomahawk chop, which is just an all time bad thing on the internet that they did. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've always kind of been like, what, what, like, who do you think you are, Florida State? Look, I think so many fan bases would be as over it as Florida State currently is. I, yep. I think they would. And they just feel trapped and they feel like they've done everything they can possibly do. And it's not really going to matter. It's not yeah. really going to matter. But yeah, as it relates to this game, Georgia by five touchdowns. Yeah. Yeah. They're begging you I to mean, take and those again, points. If you're if you're a Georgia fan, it's like we're, it's we, you know we think you're gonna win this or go away. It's really there's no there's no reason to even I, I you know it's a respect to Kirby or what he's built that I have I I hate to say you know what whatever I have a 100 percent faith that this is the type of game that Kirby Smart can get his boys ready for at this point in his career. So don't think it's like you're making this about FSU. It's really just what do you say about Georgia? I think they're a team that's really deep. They have not built through the portal. They have guys that are around fighting for their spots for next year for. Another deep playoff run they're hoping for. Well, I guess deeper with a newer playoff. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's you know, there's just not much to me to talk about from the Georgia side of it. There's you've already kind of seen your guys like you have some crazy portal edition coming in. I will ask you this, you know, you're a guy who's a lot more regimented than me. You're a system guy. You can replicate a lot of things. How do you say, you know, if you're a football team, okay, we don't care about this, we don't care about this, and then okay, boom, now we care again. It's Monday, you know, it's a week two has gone by. How do you say, okay, now we're back to caring about winning and we're going to get back to that mentality of going 13-0? I think there's a different mindset from a collective standpoint versus an individual standpoint. If I am signing up to play in a football game, I am doing everything I can to possibly mm -hmm. prepare. And when I am out there, I am doing whatever I can to win that football game. I think sometimes we overlook that and we look at the sum of the parts and we look at all the different factors surrounding a specific team and we generalize when in reality there are there could be lives changed from what Florida yep. State has on the field and guys that have been waiting for their opportunity and are going to capitalize on that. And maybe the same is going to be said for Georgia. And we'll be talking about these guys in a different way based on how they perform on a national stage like this against quality competition. 
I think there are plenty of people that will approach it that exact same way. It doesn't all of a sudden turn to, I think, oh, well, let's say I'm a Florida State running back. I see how my entire team has approached this. I'm going to spend the next four weeks just not caring, not giving a crap. I'm just going to play Madden. I, they don't care about this game. I don't care about this game. It's like, dude, you're second on the depth chart. <laughs> you're trying to trying to show that you deserved a, a chance to be able to play and put as many good things out there as humanly possible. I think if you are hating on motivation, I think you need to be reminded that there should still be plenty of individual motivation that that's there for, for so many of these guys who are signing up to play in this game, as opposed to the guys who aren't. Oh yeah. No, I'm talking about from Norvell's standpoint, like when it's like you get done with this game and then you go, okay guys, now we're, we're back. Like, how do you get the boys believing, you know, because they got to believe in something. And after that year, it's hard. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. From, from his standpoint, I think it's okay. We, we turn the page. Look, we do, we do what we set out to do. We set ourselves up. And the people that made those decisions are outside of our control. I, I don't think that's that's as hard. It's kind of we're going to throw this, it, we're going to build from this, but we're going to throw this ending in the trash. I, I mm-hmm. think you could do that if you're Norvell. I mean, goodness, they 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 feel like a team that has that has turned the corner and they should be in the hunt for a 12 team playoff berth. If you can't yep. get your team fired up and looking and recognizing that opportunity there, then you probably shouldn't have this job. Fair. All right, let's go to the ReliQuest Bowl. Your team will, the Bayou Bengals. LSU, number 13 in the country. They're 10-point favorites against Wisconsin. The over-under I have is three and a half times in which I make a reference to slinging. Slinging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Keyword. Garrett Nussmeyer starting in this game. Gunslinger. I'm going to say that counts in our slinging over-under. He's got a chance to be the guy. He's got a chance to establish himself as the guy. My Nussmeyer intrigue was definitely put on the back burner while Jaden became the best player in college football. But right now, front stove, heat's cranked up. It's getting ready to boil. It's there. That It's all coming back to me. Love that Malik Neighbors is playing in this one. Love that he's playing to get that LSU receiving yards record. He's 22 mm-hmm. yards away from breaking Josh Reed's mark. I have zero problem with that. For everyone saying, play for pride, play for the university, play for your brothers, play for your teammates, all those different things. What do you think Malik Neighbors does every single time he goes over the middle and knows that he can get his head taken off when he hauls in a pass? What do you, what do you think he's doing in those instances? Well, what's funny about that, too, is that's not his quarterback. You know what I'm saying? Like, say what you whatever. Jed Daniels has been with him, like, the last two years during this whole breakout. He's played a little bit with us, but it's like it's that takes even more uh, – takes even more bravery because if you one thing you play with Jaden, like, Hey, give me a couple of softballs here. Let me get to that. Like, I mean, a, a, a average game for him is 80 yards. Right? So let me get my 80. Let me be quiet. Go sit up for the second half. Oh, Garrett he's at like 130. Know. He's, he's at like 130 average on the, on the season. Yeah. 80s. 80 oh yeah. But, him short. Oh, I'll see you at halftime. Like get him out of there. Get oh, a yeah. quiet game for him is 80. But with us, it's like, dog, do you know how to take zip off the ball? Like, do you, like, let me make sure not throw some hospital balls. So I'm sure he kind of pulled him aside. and was like, Hey bro, here's the deal. Just don't get me killed out there because I know you like to slang that thing. But, yeah, I'm excited, man. This is the type of stuff that even during the last miles year, we would look – I mean, this is bold forward tier right here. We would look at Alabama, and they would always, you know, have guys coming back. They would always have guys playing the bowl games. And we'd say, man, like, LSU was always about the NFL. You know, it was always about, oh, go in the first round because LSU was always an amazing NFL talent. And it was kind of always about turning that page and, and guys, like, would leave uh, after the junior years and stuff. It's rare, especially at, you know – 
like we haven't seen a ton of guys come back in this era and go, no, this is pride. And it's really speaks to what Brian Kelly is building and the culture that they have around the program that without, and Jaden does not need to play. Obviously he's, he's, you know, he needs to go prepare for what could be an awesome NFL career, but it, it's super cool just to see like, those guys playing for each other. And they're the ones that brought LSU football up out of the muck. And kind of like we saw that with Bryce and Will Anderson. Like, it's cool to see those guys finish it out. Even if Neighbors decides I'm going to get my my record and then I'm going to sit out the rest of the game, I look, I, I don't think that would be a place where you, you should be mad at a guy. I, yeah. I, I, I'd be bummed because I like watching Malik Neighbors play football, but I don't think we as college football fans are in a place where we should be upset at why we're seeing a guy of his caliber take the field in a non-playoff bowl game. I think we just need to appreciate it and treat it like gravy. But it's worth remembering, Will, as much as we, we talk about how Lake Neighbors' career and his rise has coincided with the rise of Jaden Daniels, half of Garrett Nussmeyer's touchdown passes are to Malik Neighbors. Just saying. Yeah, they developed fair. Nice, nice little rapport. I remember I did something on that earlier in the year, and I went back and I watched those touchdown passes that Nuss had to him. I was like, these guys, they look pretty in sync. They look pretty in sync. Yeah. So could be could be in this game as well. LSU being a double digit favorite with a backup quarterback, that 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 lets you know kind of what the odds makers think of Wisconsin. Wisconsin pretty limited with the offensive weapons in this one. Not going to have Braylon Allen. Going to be down a few receivers. That is really good news for an LSU defense that isn't very good at full strength, as we know. Some are saying. It's a prove it came from Matt House. Uh, I don't know what 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 shutting down Wisconsin would prove, but okay. Because it would be the first team he shut down all year. So, well, <laughs> let's not overlook Mississippi State. They, I mean, they shut themselves down, brother. They, they... Yeah, that's true. That's not if that's the top of your resume for this season. That's probably not the best resume. We know that LSU will be without Mike Denbrock. The was previously the lock to go 1-1 in our SEC offensive coordinator draft. Will, I texted mm-hmm. you about that, and I thought you would be in a panic, but you weren't. Uh, so explain kind of why you don't have necessarily that concern, not just for this game, but probably more so about the future of the LSU offense that was incredible with Denbrock this past season. Oh, I'm stoked. Um, to me... Denbrock is, and I'm, I want to be clear, I credit Denbrock. I love everything that LSU football was able to do these last couple of years, specifically on offense. It was awesome. I think going forward, Denbrock was the fourth most important offensive coach to us. I think number one was Joe Sloan, the quarterback's coach, who Jaden Daniels has said over and over again, he credited him. He's the one who's in charge of recruiting Bryce Underwood, right? He's the one who's a, a force in the recruiting trail. Cortez Hankton is the receivers coach that went to St. Augustine, New Orleans, came from uh, Georgia, that coach George Pickens. You've seen kind of the drop off of the Georgia receivers since he's left and the rise of the LSU receivers, not the Georgia program. The tight ends at Georgia have been great, but the receivers since those days are a little bit different. They've kind of moved over. He's also a great recruiter, brought in some guys. And then third is going to be Brad Davis, the offensive line guy. I mean, I don't know who's recruiting offensive line better than Brad Davis right now. And the deal is at any university, you know, you're not gonna be able to keep everybody. And so for me, I'm looking at what those guys are doing on the trail and I'm looking at Joe Sloan. I mean, if you're a you know mid-major program, why would you not go call Joe Sloan and be like, hey, you can be our offensive coordinator, if not head coach. 
I was worried about Joe Sloan getting post and the offensive recruiting taking a dip because Mike Denbrock was a great, you know, uh, scheme guy and he was a veteran like, steadying presence. He was not that guy who was out there calling kids and texting them emojis and stuff. I mean, that was Hankton Sloan. That was the success on the offensive side of the ball from all the recruiting that LSU has done. So, yeah, I would love to see Joe Sloan get a shot. They're going to be co-offensive coordinators in this game, actually, Hankton and Sloan. So that's how you manage PR right there. Wow, Brian Kelly learning how PR works. Crazy this late in his career. <laughs> but, you know, for to quiet the LSU fan base, the the notification of Joe Sloan, Cortez Hankton, co-offensive coordinator is like, okay, okay, he sees what needs to be done here. That's, that, that's a, a great way to put it because – I, I think that seeing Denbrock go back to Notre Dame for the, the same role. And again, mm-hmm. we talk, that's why I always bring up the subject of autonomy and having total control yep. over one side of the ball. And at LSU, you've still got Brian Kelly, who has his hand in the offense. And at Notre Dame, obviously Marcus Freeman, defensive-minded head coach, he tries to give total autonomy to the offensive coordinator. So there, there is a difference. So it's considered a lateral move, but I, I get it. And given his his you know his ties to the midwest not a, a total surprise uh to see that but i was i was interested in kind of what your reaction was going to be like because you have been i think very frustrated with certain offensive play callers at lsu before and then also very appreciative of the ones that look like they have a freaking clue mike denbrock had a clue he had a clue yes. and it, it was telling that Jaden bought in as much as he did to that system to that scheme and seeing the way that it, that it played out but lsu having internal options that look like they should be the long-term solution there. It, it makes it a lot easier than what it could be when like, oh, well, Joe Brady was one and done. He's, he's gone. He's off. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to figure out what exactly is next with Ensminger and, and the way that it's played out. So, yeah, interesting subject. I'm sure something we'll talk about a lot. It'll be, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, if you're taking an LSU offensive coordinator 1-1 in the draft this year, I'm, I'm not going to call you a homer. I might call you a homer. I might call you home. We'll, we'll see. We'll see who the hire is. And like, I'll say this too, you know, regardless of who the offensive coordinator was, it was going to be a radically different offense next year because there was one Jaden Daniels walking around this earth. Yep. And true. when you think about how he was able to make things work outside of the system, you know, in both years, that year one, the system didn't work as well. Year two, he was able to use the system and then run outside of it. That's also why this is pretty exciting to me because we're not, there could have been an adjustment year with Denbrock where he still tried to do the Jaden Daniels stuff and there was no Jaden Daniels to run it. So it's nice to just start from a clean slate and say, hey, let's give Nuss a chance, you know, even if it's Swan, but we know who we have and let's go for our personnel and not try to fit a square pig in a round hole, kind of like we did with, Jay, with Jaden at the beginning. Agreed. And I do think AJ Swan is better than what he was given credit for at Vandy. And I, a lot of similarities actually to, to he and Nussmeyer, the way that they approach the game. So uh, that'll mm-hmm. be, it looks like it'll be a, a quarterback battle. By the way, LSU by four touchdowns in this game. It's a shame that we won't have Bloomin' Onion or Coconut Shrimp on the line again. We need to be getting more of these things involved like we, we have with, with Pop-Tarts and, and Mayo and all that stuff. As many food bowls as possible. I want more of that. But SEC's won six of this, six of the last eight games that have been the Relia Quest, Outback Bowl, whatever you want to call it. LSU's going to make it seven and nine. Other game in the state of Florida on New Year's Day at Citrus Bowl. Number, well, number 17, Iowa? Is Iowa 17? I don't remember. Uh, against Tennessee. Tennessee is a six-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under, I know I should have something related to punting. We'll get to punting. We'll get to the Iowa offense, but hold on. The over-under is seven-and-a-half incorrect pronunciations of Nico Yamaleava. No knock on Dave Fleming. Dave Fleming does a great job. It's just reality. There will be mispronunciations of his name. Reality is that Joe Milton 
opted out of his final college game. Opted out. I put in air quotes. Yeah. Mm. Um, take of that. It's kind of like Asheroth not going to class. It's like, bro, you got to go. You got stuff to do, man. <laughs> when I Love College dropped in 2008, that was played, man, uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. My tr- my, I, I was about to call myself a true freshman. My freshman year of college, I couldn't go anywhere without hearing some Asher Roth, man. That was, oh, that was, that was prevalent. Near there near is, Joe was a sophomore back then. Those were happy days. <laughs> it's going to depress me to think about how young he still probably was at that time and, uh, oh, and no. how old I was. I don't even want to go there. I don't want to do the math. Joe Milton getting the opt out label for this game. Let's be clear. Okay, let's 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 get this all out there. This is a benching described as an opt-out. And that's fine for all parties. That's fine. I am I'm very um skeptical of of the people that are calling out Joe Milton for opting out of this game. I'm like, are you are you guys people not are looking at this? Calling him situation? out for that? Do they do I don't want to name names. Attention? I don't want to name names. I'm not actually I think Tennessee fans are are pretty well aware of this situation and they're excited to turn the page to Nico Iamaleava. I I think they're excited to see what he's going to do in this game and what he is able to do a little bit of extra prep time going into a matchup against Iowa defense that's lights out. But Joe Milton not playing in this game is best for all parties because if you're Hypel, you don't have to make this seem like he was benched. You give Joe Milton the opportunity to try and establish himself as an NFL prospect, which I will tell everybody he is going to be regarded by NFL front offices, probably going to end up being a mid round pick or something like that because of the tools. And you don't have to explain to GMs and front offices why you got benched in favor of a true freshman at the end of the season. This Mm -hmm. is if Joe Milton truly wanted and was all about playing in this game. I think Joe Milton would be playing in this game, but it's a little bit of this agreement of like, Hey, um, let's do what's best for the team. Let's try and spin it forward to, to next year by having Nico play in this one. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I would rather see start number one for Nico than Joe Milton on his, his last in his last game. And again, I will defend him and what he meant to that program as a bridge, the gap guy between, between Hennon Hooker and Nico Yamaleava, and I, I will appreciate what he did. But yes, moving on to the new era. So it's going to be a really difficult uphill climb. We we know that. Say what you want about the Iowa offense, but defensively they are rock solid, top five in a bunch of major categories, including yards per rush allowed, yards per pass allowed, yards per play allowed. They have won six games while scoring 20 points or less. If you just capped off the Iowa offense and said, you can't score more than 20 points, they would still be bowl eligible in the year of our Lord, 2023. That is so hard to do. It is so hard to do. It is one of the most miraculous 10 win teams ever because of the style. And because if you look at their offensive numbers, you would think to yourself, Oh, that's a two and 10 team. You just would. Yep. Okay. Yep. The record that I was that, that Kyle, I sent you the record, the best record Head for 40, a yeah. team with the worst offense in college football. Best record has ever been with four wins. This team got 10 
Um, I just want to say, I mean, Lane Kiffin actually would probably be a little bit more, but is this the most like disjointed matchup of head coaches ever? Like the two most different head coaches ever. Like imagine you had these two guys in a podcast and you just go, time of possession. <laughs> Offensive thoughts. Go. It's like one of them only cares about offense, and the other one's like, yeah, hardly know her offense. I think I've heard of that before. Like, the fact that, like, I want to hear these two human beings who are both top, you know, 0001% of their profession just have a conversation about what they do all day, just how they value life in the game. Like, I can't wait for it. Like, this, they are so different. Leech, Leech and Kirk Ferentz would have been mm. – that probably would have been the most opposite. I don't think they ever faced each other in a bowl game. I don't think they did. Despite the fact there were a lot of tie-ins where they, they definitely could, but I don't think that matchup happened unless I'm forgetting something like that or some like Washington State or Texas Tech thing. Um, but, yeah, that, that's got to be up there. Just very different philosophies in every sort of way, uh, these two coaches, the way that they approach. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whose style actually can win out in this one. But as you know and as everybody listening to this knows, Iowa got to this place because they can defend – and, buddy, they can punt. They can punt. Tory Taylor mm-hmm. might be better at his job than 99.9% of college football players. And that's yeah. not to say that he's he's one of the best players in the country, but he has been I mean, awesome. he is. He, it's pretty – I mean, if they had an average punter, this team is not good. An average punter changes the win total of Iowa by two wins? Are they yeah. – Are they? In he's one of the team? most important – Five or six most important players in college football. He's a rhythm punter. It's, he has 86 punts this year, Will. That is 16 more than any Power 5 punter. He averages 317 punt yards per game. The Iowa offense averages 239 yards per game. <laughs> Such a funny number. Yeah, I mean, no, it's because, I mean, think about guys that could shank the ball or fumble the ball. I mean, he hasn't done that. So it's like one of those in all of those reps. I mean, Every average butter would do that a couple of times and the game's over with. The guy had the Joe Burrow entrance recreated for his senior day. And it was kind <laughs> of a joke, but mostly not. Not really. Like that guy is the absolute best. He is he mm-hmm. is awesome. He is the offense. It's pretty obvious what the Iowa path to victory is. It is just pinning a freshman quarterback deep in his own in his own territory hoping that he craps the bed, you get good field position, you make some field goals. I'm not even going to outline all the the absences that the Tennessee has in the secondary because who needs a secondary when you're facing Iowa? You, you just don't. <laughs> unless, unless Brian Ferentz in his final game decides that he's feeling frisky and he just lets it all hang out and he's chucking it. And it's this beautiful swan song. I don't think that happens. But if Iowa wins this game, I want that man carried off the field for reminding us all that working hard and being good at your job, it's the foundation of the American dream. But nepotism is just so much better. It's so much better, Will. If you got it, great. Awesome. Yeah. Use it to your advantage. Brian Ferentz successfully used it to become a millionaire. And I... Bless him for that. Bless him for that. What a game we're going to get. I'm bummed that this game is on the same day as the playoff games. Otherwise, I'd probably just head down to the Citrus Bowl and take it in. I will just assume 
that if I hear a massive roar from my house, it'll be because of a perfect Iowa punt and nothing else. That's that's really the only way I, I can see this going. But I actually, I don't think Tennessee covers. I think Tennessee wins, but Iowa covers. Six and a half still feels like a little bit too much for Tennessee. So I'll take Tennessee to win like, oh, God. 17 to 14. Let's go 17 to 14. Tennessee wins this one. And Heupel has a rare defensive struggle that he is on the winning side of. I, man. And that's the other thing is that Tennessee's kind of also quietly a running team. I'm actually like, so you talked about like the Mizzou Ohio State game. I'm looking at this because I'm a sicko. I'm like, I actually kind of like this one almost more because this could go so many ways because this, like you said, could very much turn into like a version of the Kentucky game where it's like, yeah, this is actually just a ground and pound Tennessee team that is here Please to just don't. punch your life. Please in. don't let this become the game that that was so bad last year. Well, that Music City Bowl was even Iowa fans. My my, my two best friends are Iowa fans. I'm mm. Like, yeah, we turned that game off at halftime. They were at an Iowa bar, and they're like, "We're this doesn't even feel right." That game, nobody should have been subjected to that. It was so bad. Oh. I meant Tennessee, Kentucky this year. Like that was just a oh, yeah, yeah. because it okay. was two like running offenses, which I mean, Different. hey, Iowa's an offense that runs the ball uh, probably better than they throw it. Uh, yeah, I do not predict a uh, step ladder game for Brian Ferentz. I don't think that that's going to happen. I think that he is going to, um, you know, like I, I think that this is, I'm trying to think how to say this. I'm, you know, game script, right? I'm trying to imagine a game script in which Iowa gets over about like 24 and I just can't do it even with Hypo because like it's, 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 the, it's the deal of, Heupel's flaws are he gives the ball to the other team, whereas I was just like, oh, you could have it back. Oh, we don't. No, it's fine. Well, you could have your turn. And so it's just going to be like a polite off between these two. But yeah, I, I'm so fascinated. I have no idea what's going to happen. Scary, to be honest. But yeah, I actually think you probably are right where it turns into, okay, you know, especially with, uh, okay, Iamaleava. Nico Iamaleava. Correct. Okay. Yamaleava. So look, now he matters. I told you now he's playing. Now I'm going to care. So yep. he, I mean, as much as the guys, you know, as much as the fans want to see him sling it and everything, I do think that Hypel being a smart coach is going to run the ball a ton because like I said, why would you give Iowa a chance to get turnovers? I would just do what they do well. So it, I don't want to make everyone think this is going to be some crazy like 50 to 10 game when in reality, it's probably going to be a ground and pound game. Like you said, because you're going to want to limit that and not just give Iowa a chance at field goals, which is their bread and butter. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to say, It'll be in the, let's say, like, 21-17 Tennessee. Do you know what the over-under is for this game, Will? I can't wait. What is it? It's 35 and a half. I don't know that Josh Heupel has coached in a game in which the over-under has been in the 30s ever. I would doubt it. He will never coach in another game where that is the case. (laughs) Yeah, this is the perfect storm. Yes, he could be. Well, I mean, maybe if he like the wheels fall off and it's like a butch joint, you never know. But like, you no, know, because even then, it, like UCF, the offense was great. Like even when when the defense was bad, the kicker was like fighting people. The offense was awesome. Like Dylan Gabriel, those boys were killing it. So yeah, I mean, that was the, like they like a third string quarterback gets LSU would have run it up in the bowl game. So yeah, I, I'm fascinated by this. I, I think that like yeah, this is going to be a very fun Josh Heupel game to really see what he's about as a coach. Yeah, it should be a weird one uh, down here in my neck of the woods. All right, last one, Rose Bowl. Alabama, Michigan. Michigan is a a one-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under I have is .5 J.J. McCarthy touchdowns. By the way, just a heads up, we did a a very in-depth breakdown of this game on betting the Bulls, which 
again. Um, if you haven't listened to those, you absolutely should. Still a lot of a lot of meat on the bones left uh, from those episodes. Uh, the episode that we dropped on Thursday morning had a lot of talk about this game. So I'm probably going to repeat myself a, a little bit here. I'm going to try and do my best to, to not repeat myself. The 0.5 J.J. McCarthy touchdowns over under is because that guy has one touchdown pass since the calendar turned to November. It's been a very different story for the Michigan passing game than it has been for the Alabama passing game. And despite the fact that they have the exact same number of pass attempts, J.J. McCarthy and Jalen Milrow, 118 since the calendar turned to November, it's been pretty different in terms of the efficiency. Milrow only having one turnover. One turnover in that stretch is pretty amazing, especially when you consider he's had, what, like 19 passes of 20 yards during that stretch. He's averaged over 10 yards per attempt. He's just gotten better and better and better. And McCarthy hasn't been asked to do as much. Mentioned the 32 consecutive handoffs against Penn State. But it is still, a, a, he feels like a question mark in this game. The question that I've been coming back to throughout this entire bowl season, and I know I've said it on multiple places, you've heard me say this a lot, so I apologize. Again, I'm warning you that I'm repeating myself. But when Talia Tungabailoa is the best quarterback that your team has faced, easily the best quarterback that your team has faced, that tells me you haven't faced a lot of very good quarterbacks. Jalen Milrow is the best quarterback that Michigan has faced. And if Michigan mm -hmm. is overlooking how improved he has been, I would say – they are doing a disservice to his game. They they really are. I don't know that they will be. They're trying to simulate him in practice with Alex Orgy, who is really similarly built to Milrow. If you look at like their yeah, I think I think Orgy's actually a little bit heavier than Milrow, which is kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this will be a simulation that we look back on and say, oh, this is like what Stetson Bennett did for Georgia to simulate Baker Mayfield, the head of that Rose Bowl. I don't know that Michigan will have the same sort of like post victory appreciation for what he's doing on scout team, but there seems to be a confidence level with Michigan that has not quite been there in years past against an SEC team like Bama. It's a, such an interesting matchup on a variety of levels. And as much as it frustrated me that Florida state was left out of the field again, left out of the field. I, sh I thought that Texas should have been the team that, that was left out and Florida State should have been in. But once you get over that, you realize this matchup is awesome. It's great. We're getting two prolific coaches squaring off in a game that feels like it means a lot for their respective legacies. And for the Michigan side, is this the, the last dance? Is this the last opportunity for them to be able to get on this level? That That is a question that is going to be alive and well throughout this matchup. I could see Michigan getting off to an early start, coming out, establishing the run. Bama has to make these adjustments. Bama's trailing at half. And then we're reminded that this Bama team is really comfortable in that spot, and they do not flinch. It's kind of a microcosm of their season, of, of being down in these, these games at halftime and then just saying, nope, we're going we're gonna to stick to what we do best. Milrow has done such a good job of not panicking and not forcing some of these throws like we saw against – uh, against Texas early in the year, he has gotten away from that. And I think Bama has the advantage. I, I can't bet against Saban in this spot. We have never seen, Will, a team that is outside of the top 10 in the 24-7 sports talent composite 
beat a team inside of the top 10 in the playoff. The more talented team has won 13 of those 16, 13 of 16 matchups, I think it is, in semifinal games. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, just since 2015, since this has been created. So keep that in mind. By the way, and the teams have lost are teams like Michigan that were not super talented. Yeah, like so um, last year, TCU beating Michigan. I think TCU was 32nd in the country in terms of the, the talent composite, and Michigan was 13th. So Michigan was was outside of the top 10. Right. Um, so so a little bit different there, but yeah, and Clemson beating Oklahoma 2015 was another example of that, and uh, both teams were outside of the top 10. Apologies if you can hear banging in the background. They're like creating a new. There's there's a company that's like digging up basically the area in our front yard to to create new internet throughout our entire neighborhood. So apologies mm-hmm. if you can hear that in the background. Um, but yeah, as it relates to this game, I think that Alabama is in a really nice spot with everything that we talk about as Saban as an underdog. Mm-hmm. Six times the Saban has been an underdog in the last fifteen seasons. It's four and one in those games. The only time that he's lost as an underdog, just outright as an underdog, was national championship 2021 against Georgia, a game that Bama led in the fourth quarter, obviously. And for a while, we're like, oh, my God, they're going to do it again. I can't bring myself to say that Bama is going to lose on this stage. I just can't. And as much as Michigan has looked like this is finally their year, I still come back to I, I haven't seen Michigan do it in, against anybody that matters in non-conference play in five years. And I can't start now against this Bama team. Maybe this is Michigan's year. It does feel like the winner of this game has the best path to win a national championship. But give me the tide. Give me another comeback victory. And give me another moment for Jalen Milrow, kind of quieting the doubters and showing that he is not the same guy that we saw back in week two. Yeah, and, you know, like you said, you did the betting the bulls thing, so I got to bring my own, you know, unique thing that hasn't been said. Um... There was a period of what two or three weeks in the middle of the season where humans got on television and wrote articles about JJ McCarthy being a Heisman Trophy winner and therefore the best player in America. I think after I get off of here, I'm going to get on YouTube and go watch that so I can laugh. Um, and I'm not, it's not a Jaden Daniels thing. It's a Bo Nix, Michael Pettis, Michael P- uh, Pettis, Jordan Travis, whoever. I mean, the Iowa punter, I'm going to put him at the Heisman before this dude. The fact that he is gone from a guy who oh my gosh he's the leader he's steady in the ship to the you know consecutive runs against to consecutive runs against Penn State to now he's a liability and you're talking about how Jalen Milrow is clearly better than him as a passer <laughs> not talking about how the guy is built like a fire truck not talking about how the guy is quieted the turnovers not talking about how the guy is a better leader how the guy like, pe- people play for him how he's more clutch I mean there is not a part of the game of football <laughs> <laughs> that J.J. McCarthy is better than Milrow at. And Milrow was a guy that, you know, at that point in the season, we were like, this guy is like maybe a top 30, 40 quarterback. It was when he had the turnover issues. And, and he's improved. It's not like we were wrong about Milrow. McCarthy was never that guy. I'm just going to be honest with you. You're exactly right. Um, Tungo Bailoa was his best quarterback he played. And, I mean, it's funny because I personally feel like the only people that are saying that this is Michigan's year are Michigan fans. I mean, this has felt like a cluster from beginning to end. They started with a suspension. They had a suspension in the middle. You know, it, it has been – and that was a good stat that Marler has been bringing up about, like, the post Connor Stallions offense is completely different. I mean, this team has just been held together by duct tape playing nobody. Feels like for a long time now. I mean, since the TCU loss, honestly. So it's like – 
I I feel like this is a dream matchup for Nick Saban. And like I said it at the time, and I, I don't want to, you know, it's great when you get to talk this confidently about not your team. And I mean, even more so about a team that you don't like, because if they lose, I can laugh. That's the best part. They can make me look silly and I'll still laugh. But point being is that, you know, when you see, and I said this before, the audible visual fear in the eyes of those players when they have to play Alabama, you kind of know why. And the answer is that not only, you know, like if you believe it's your year, if, if like even Kirby and them, when they had to play Nick Saban again, we're not like, oh, oh my God, it's Nick Saban. They were like, you know what, this time we might have him. And point being, you know, it's not about, you know, if, if your whole rep is we're undefeated, we're the machine, we're the juggernaut, we're number one. It's like, dude, Jim Harbaugh could coach another I mean, it would take him, what, 20, 30 years now? Because he has all the losses to equate to what Nick Saban's done. So at the end of the day, the things that you feel like are strengths for Michigan, right? Used to be the quarterback, not anymore. Um, not the talent when you're playing a team like Alabama, not even close, honestly. Um, not the coaching, right? That, I mean, that, so I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, definitive guarantee anything. But I would say that this would be, at this point, it would be very shocking for me. I know it's a one-point spread, all this different stuff, but if you think about what Michigan is, it's like a paper tiger. Like, we used to talk about Russia during the Cold War. It's like the the image of them that we have in our minds is not real, right? It's not the team with Connor Stallions, a team that's playing Rutgers and, and doing all this stuff. That's not the team that's showing up against Alabama. And furthermore, Alabama is just different from anything they've seen. It's pos- It's possible to have bad reps you know sometimes you would rather take the mystery box in the boat when the thing that you know is not that good and so like I think that Alabama like 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 if you're if you're Michigan and you have all this confidence that you've been building running the ball being one-dimensional pushing guys around and you go see Alabama who an offensive line we've been joking about all year I mean first half of the year one of the worst offensive lines in America they're going to be one of the scariest offensive lines Michigan's played because now they're starting to play together. Now they're starting to, they have that talent. You can't coach 6'5", 6'6", 330 like those guys are. So, yeah, I, I think that, like I said, this is a, a nightmare matchup for Michigan. They would have loved to have a Florida State to kind of warm up against to say, okay, you don't have your quarterback, you're a little bit dejected, we'll see how this goes. You're a defensive team, we'll keep it low scoring. With this Alabama team, you're going to need to score, number one. They, they are. I hate to say journalist murder, murder ball, but I mean, the defense is scary. We'll say that. Um, but at the end of the day, what you know in the back of your mind is exactly what those players felt when they saw Alabama, which is that they're never dead. You know, this team has died. They're a zombie Darth Vader Alabama team that Michigan's not the scariest team they've seen this year. They've beaten, with a slight asterisk, Jaden Daniels. They've beaten, they've come back against Auburn. They've beaten Georgia, the team that was the juggernaut that we talked about in a different category than Michigan because they've won before. And so, yeah, I think, you know, if you beat Georgia in Atlanta, if you're now 5-1 and one against Kirby Smart, beating Jim Harbaugh is just kind of like, all right, man. And like I said, would be a massive program-shaking win for Jim Harbaugh. Might be something that keeps him at Michigan for a long time if he's able to do that. If you're a Michigan fan, this is, I mean, arguably the biggest game in program history because if you win this game, you can start to go, all right, Jim Harbaugh, like, you can do this, man. Let's not keep looking at those NFL jobs every offseason. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not as stylistically interesting to me as some of the games that we've seen, but I do think narrative-wise, I mean, the most boring outcome is a – upset in favor of Alabama because if you know without Connor Stallions Michigan is able to overcome Nick Saban I don't think we're doing the Saban fraud thing at all given the 11 wins given everything they've done this year um but I think that like you said on one hand it's like oh you know Michigan's undefeated Alabama's you know talent why they've all just been a little bit disjointed this year but on the other hand you just look at these two teams you just use your eyeballs and you're like one of these teams is way scarier than the other one it's not the one that's favored 
it could end up being that Bama is favored by the time kickoff happens. As Marler True. outlined, I'm betting the Bulls. This could be a spot where we get last second action where everybody's mm-hmm. pouring it in on Bama and that it's changes. all gonna be Marler. That's the thing. That's why he knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marler has confidence in, in Bama in this one. He has not had a lot of confidence during the regular season. But yeah, look, you calling Michigan Russia or comparing Michigan to Russia, um, I I think that makes Harbaugh Ivan Drago, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> a little bit, honestly. Yeah. A little bit. Oh, little gosh. Bit. Nick Saban. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. That would be Jalen Milrow would be Rocky in that situation. I'm not yeah. giving that to Nick Saban. That's Jalen Milrow. He's taking the punches. He's coming back. If I could change, you could change. Uh, look, I think that this is going to be one of those games in which if Michigan wins, you're going to see a different J.J. McCarthy than what we've seen the past month. And that was kind of what yep. I was getting at earlier. Yep. You're not just going to beat beat Alabama by saying we're going to run the football down your throat nonstop start to finish. Not an mm-hmm. Alabama team that's had a chance to be able to get healthy. Not an Alabama team that's had a chance to prepare. I think it's a little bit different when we're talking about what Alabama was against Auburn at Jordan-Hare, a game in which Auburn mm-hmm. was content being one-dimensional, and it almost worked. It should have worked if not for fourth and 31. I think it's different when you have time to prepare, when you have a chance to be able to kind of get your legs under you. At, like Alabama has had, and you're going to have to be more creative. You're going to have to ch- take some of those chances downfield. And you think about what Texas was able to do against Bama and why that plan was so successful, why Bama was not able to come back at home. It's because they had a guy like Quinn Ewers step up and make big-time mm-hmm. throws and say, I know that I could get Chris Braswell or Dallas Turner just taking me into the earth this, as soon as I let go of this football, but I, I'm going to drop it in a bucket. And if J.J. McCarthy can do that and do that consistently, that's obviously a game changer. And what would change my outlook of Michigan? I'm not trying to overlook Michigan. I'm not trying to pretend that their their run to get to this point as the number one overall seed to get to 13-0 amidst all the different circumstances, self-created circumstances. I'm not trying to discount that and say that it means nothing and that their schedule was just total crap. And I know a lot of people will, but – I still just think that they're going to be in a different spot and it's a different spot trying to defend what Alabama has become. And that's, that's the difference that, that I think plays out. And I think ultimately Alabama goes into, goes, goes into Pasadena and wins a football game for Saban to get to his 10th national championship in 15 years. Think about that. Well, I try not to. Anyway, yeah. back to your <laughs> but uh, but back to your point. I do want to say. I mean, do you think there could be an element? And like, this isn't a joke. We've seen this before because this was the Jimbo Fisher ain't as good as I once was special, which is uh, basically Michigan kind of structurally being like, hey, you know what? We've kind of decided we really don't need to do a lot to beat Iowa and do all this stuff. And if they're not going to take us out of contention, then it will be enough to we'll do enough to win. And maybe they just like, is there an element of maybe they save the good place like Jimbo did and they come out? I mean, do you think they come out and try to use JJ McCarthy more and go like shotgun and really just spread the ball out and use him as a thrower? Or do you think they are who they are and that offense is set? I think they are who they are. And I think there are different little wrinkles they can add to it, but Mm -hmm. they play their best hand against Ohio State. There's there's no way yeah. that they were saving any good plays against Ohio State. I don't think there was any mm-hmm. any way they were saving all the good plays against Penn State. They just realized, despite the fact that they're up against the number one rushing defense in the country, they're having a lot of success running the football, and they don't care. Mm-hmm. That's kind of who Michigan has been these past couple of years, is we feel like we are going to beat you in the trenches. 
We feel like we have the guys to be able to do that. And we're, we're going to, to wear you down over the course of 60 minutes. And to their credit, it's gotten them to three consecutive playoff berths. Hasn't gotten them a playoff win yet. Maybe that can change against this Bama team. And maybe this is the end of the rope. And an Alabama team that we were saying for a while, uh, we don't think they have national championship upside. Maybe we're saying that by day's end on Monday. And that does prove to be the case. And Michigan looks the part. But I don't. I don't. I just don't. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited, though. Rose Bowl with an SEC team. Last time this happened, it was fun. It was really, really fun. Georgia, Oklahoma, certain uh, walk-off touchdown from Sony Michelle. I was telling Marler, I think that was the last time that I was truly hungover that day. Yeah. New Year's Day, um, New Year's Day 2018, end of the 2017 mm-hmm. season. I think that was the last time that I was truly hungover. It's been almost six years. Pat on the wow. back. You, Baker Mayfield, humble yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's kick it to Brad Crawford. Great combo with one of my guys, uh, Doug, pretty deep into some portal things. Um, Brad is on top of a lot of the different numbers that are being thrown out there as well, kind of what's real, what's not. So talk about that. Talk about Bowl conversations, the future of that, a little bit of Beamer, obviously, as well. So here's Brad. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is my guy, Brad Crawford. Uh, Brad, as a lover of all things Bulls, and I think you are the biggest Bulls fan of anybody that I know. I mean, truly, like the buildup and everything that goes into it, reporting on these things. Like you have a different type of passion for it than even I do. And I feel like I I love this sport and can watch it endlessly. But have you been bummed out with the opt outs, the portal entries that have just dominated the discussion? Or is this still been your favorite time of year that you just look forward to circle on the calendar no matter what? As a bowl season purist, Connor, it certainly has bothered me. And it started a couple of years ago. I mean, first of all, I'm I'm already pounding my fist that the Hawaii Bowl was moved off of Christmas Eve. That was like a yep. Crawford family tradition to watch that game, you know, eat some eat some refreshments and get ready for Santa. But yeah, I mean, all the opt outs and the portal departures, college football's recruiting calendar, really, it has uh, put a major damper on, on bowl season. We've got 41 games now, the most ever, and let's be honest, only maybe five or six of them truly matter um you know don't tell guys like miller moss usc quarterback that after he had six touchdown passes that's that's the beauty of bowl season you have performances like that and then you have you know teams like a&m that have like 44 scholarship players available and still play pretty hard but there's no easy fix to this um but as you mentioned as someone who loves bowl season i've loved it for as long as i've been in this profession uh certainly has major changes are needed. Okay. So what are those, those major changes? Because the, the recruiting calendar is, is definitely part of this, the portal window, when it opens up, it's the portal is a bigger problem for bowl games than, than the opt-outs itself. Cause the opt-outs are actually a lot less than, than people realize, but you know, portal kind of gets lumped into that. So what would you change to, to make this experience better? Because there's definitely not a quick, easy solution. For starters, I think, players who are participating in these bowl games, they need, number one, insurance assurances. So if I'm a quarterback who tears my ACL in the, you know, Birmingham Bowl, then 
I'm going to need some money for that. Um, we saw, I think, in 2017 it was Jalen Smith, Notre Dame linebacker, tore, tore up his knee in the Fiesta Bowl and wound up not being drafted in the first round. He had a $1 million insurance policy taken out on himself before that game, cashed out. I know Leonard Fournette had about $10 million worth of stuff during that junior year at LSU. So I think uh, bowl organizers, TV networks, they need to make sure these players know that, hey, you're going to be rewarded financially if something does happen to you in the game. And then I think second, the probably the major thing is players need to be paid participating. A couple of years ago, I'd, I wouldn't have been in that camp, but now I, I do see these bowl games as exhibition somewhat. And for players to play an extra 13th game, sometimes a 14th or 15th game, if you're really good that year, you know, they, they need to be paid for it. And TV TV contracts, advertising deals, those powers that be, they can afford to pay these players, you know, maybe a 50 to 60 grand stipend or something. Um, bowl gifts, Connor, just aren't enough anymore. PS5s, anybody can get those. Yeah, it's something that I, I suggest on an annual basis to, to Gary Stoken, who runs the Peach Bowl, obviously, and something that I have on the show once or twice a year. And it is difficult to to continue to try and, and and ramp up the incentives when they they don't necessarily feel like they're going to change the opinions of the big time guys. And, and I totally get that. The portal guys, I think, is where it could get a little bit interesting. Um, is there panic among the bowl execs that that you've talked to? What's the feeling like with the twelve team playoff approaching, knowing that bowl games are going to take an even different sort of turn now knowing that the 12 team playoff is going to kind of be the end all be all for a lot of these teams. Yeah. I don't think any bowl reps, you know, at, at the orange bowl, Rose bowl, sugar bowl would, would say this on the record, but I, I kind of get the feel behind the scenes that those new year six games don't really appreciate ESPN and TV having as much pull as they do um, during the selection process. You know, I spoke to someone at the Orange Bowl before they got Georgia-Florida State several weeks ago, and they said we have no say whatsoever in who gets picked in our 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 game anymore. And, you know, if, if I'm a part of that Orange Bowl committee, I'm pretty upset at that because I want to be able to see who I'm getting, which which teams may opt out. And, and now we have over 40 players who have opted out of that game, two dozen just on Florida State alone. So uh, – Changes need to be made. Like you said, there, there's no easy fix to this. There's even been talk within our industry of possibly moving some of bowl season to the spring where we hmm. make them spring-type exhibition games. But for me, I don't think that'll ever happen because what are we going to do, put quarterbacks in a yellow non-contact jersey? Because you don't want quarterbacks getting hurt in an exhibition spring game. Yeah, it's an imperfect postseason for a sport that just – can't necessarily operate the way that, that others do. And I, I fully get that. Let's talk portal. What's the most eye popping thing that you've heard as it relates to a transfer guy, maybe, maybe a price for a player an accomplished player, not getting the love that you thought he would. What's one of those things that, that you've heard that you just kind of stepped back and went, wow, that is uh that that's telling that's a sign of the times. Yeah. I can, I can even go hyper local with this juice wells at South Carolina. I mean, the number of hoops to Gamecocks, jumped through just to sign Juice Wells a couple of years ago out of James Madison. Then he has an all-SEC season, his first campaign in Columbia. Got hurt this year and pretty much chose 
to stay out to preserve another year of eligibility when when he was healthy. And now he wanted double money from, you know, the the highest bidder. I don't think he got what he asked for from Ole Miss. He did sign with Ole Miss, but he certainly got more than South Carolina was giving him. And I just think it's a sign of the times, man. If if you're a um above average college football player, then you're sort of a free agent now every recruiting cycle in December and you can listen to let's face it, offers. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, I've I've spoken to several NIL collectives, not just in the SEC, but elsewhere among the Power Five and, and G5, and these players are just getting horrible information from handlers, uh, people who are labeling themselves as, as agents now, so to speak. Everybody wants a piece of the pie, and I totally get it, but, you know, a lot of these guys entering the portal, especially the top 25, top 20, uh, tier guys are certainly do it solely because of the money. Let's. Uh, bef- I, I have other portal things I want to get to with you, but you, you bring up Juice Wells. Probably a lot of Ole Miss fans who have heard the name, they're like, hey, this this is a big-time addition. Maybe they caught some of what he did at the end of 2022 and obviously South Carolina was beating the likes of, of Tennessee and Clemson and played really well in the bowl game as well against Notre Dame. What 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 would you tell Ole Miss fans that they are getting in in Juice Wells? And do you think that this is the type of move that we're going to be talking about next year? Like, wow, like Kiffin just has another All SEC receiver, and this guy has All America type upside. Or is there maybe some cause for concern with with his injury history, what he dealt with this year? I think they're getting a sure-handed difference maker if he can stay healthy. Um, a lot of what Juice Wells does well is at the line of scrimmage, which that's Lane Kiffin's offense. A lot of you know quick outs and get the ball out fast as you can if you're Jackson Dart. And they've got Quinshawn Judkins back too, as far as I know. So that's going to be a uh, pretty insane one-two punch offensively with Dart Judkins back. And now you've got Trey Harris, Juice Wells. They're in the mix for Evan Stewart. I think a lot of a lot of us thought Bama, Texas would be the landing spots for five-star Evan Stewart. And now Ole Miss is one of those players because the Grove, the NIL collective in in Oxford is uh, lapping some of these other SEC programs as far as what they're willing to give out. So I think Ole Miss is getting an instant impact player. But like you said, the million-dollar question with Juice Wells is, you know, can he stay healthy? He was banged up a little bit too during that 2022 season when he was a first-team All-SEC guy. So I think he can be an early-round pick. I don't see Juice Wells – as a first round guy because of his size, but I do think he's going to be an impact player in Oxford. And I mean, right now, this is the most talented roster Ole Miss has ever had. And that's better than Laquan Treadwell, Robert Kimdichie went under Hugh Freeze. That's a crazy thought. And it's not wrong. I can't even push back on that. Even though you look at some of those rosters in the mid 2010s, you're like, man, they got Kimdichie, they got Tunzel, they got, you know, as you mentioned, Treadwell and Brown, like, it's it's crazy to to think about what what they have been able to to do in a very short period of time. Let's speculate wildly. Maybe Ole Miss is part of this conversation. Maybe a guy like Walter Nolan is the answer to this question. Who do you think is the most expensive portal player so far? Because Riley Leonard would have been maybe my guess, but that felt so obvious to Notre Dame immediately. So is it maybe someone who hasn't committed yet, like a Cam Ward? that could be going for the the highest price. And, and, you know, you see the way that this has been a really like drawn out process with his recruitment. Like who's that guy that you think will have the highest price at, at the end of the day in the portal? I actually believe the Cam Ward rumored $2 million next year, you know, 
between Miami and Florida State. Those are two programs that desperately need a a quarterback now with Jordan Travis exhausting his eligibility, Tate Rodemaker now entering the portal, and then Miami Tyler Van Dyke, the three-year starter there, goes to Wisconsin. So those two programs have to sign a guy. And I think you see a guy like Arkansas quarterback K.J. Jefferson who maybe uh, his camp thought his stock was higher than it was, but if Miami or Florida State misses out on Cam Ward, the other one has to go get a proven guy like a Jefferson. So I think it's smart, man, some of these quarterbacks who have not committed yet, even some who are going to enter during the next portal cycle to kind of pick and choose where they want to play. Will Howard's a guy, Kansas State. He has not committed yet. USC's been in on him. So there's still, you know, four or five what I consider elite programs, depending on who they sign, who needed the, the position. And I think Cam Moore is going to be the ultimate winner of this 2024 portal cycle. And he's probably going to fetch upwards of $1.8 to $2 million. That's crazy. It's just absolutely crazy to hear about some of these prices, man, especially knowing that a lot of this is just going to be one year and then and then you're out. Uh, KJ, I'm glad you brought him up because I was going to ask you about him. You talk about the camp not necessarily having the same yeah. vision that some of these other programs had and the way that it all played out with South Carolina where he was in the portal and then he's like, nah, I haven't made up my mind yet. It's just weird. It's just weird all around at every level. Have you been able to make sense of this situation? How do you see this playing out? The KJ Jefferson saga has been one of the strangest quarterback recruitments in the portal, at least that I can remember since covering the portal the last three or four uh, cycles. Back in November, Connor, I heard that KJ was going to use his last year of eligibility elsewhere, somewhere in the SEC. I was told that South Carolina was going to make a run at him if he entered the portal. Well, turns out KJ didn't enter the portal until four weeks later, which is way longer than the South Carolina staff and and other staffs who were interested expected. The the Gamecocks kind of moved out on him once they found out, you know, his asking price was, you know, north of 750 to a million dollars. That's a big risk for a guy like KJ Jefferson, who, while he's a very good quarterback and he's proven to play at an elite level in the SEC, that's that's still a pretty penny. So not to mention the Gamecocks already signed Rocket Sanders, gave some money to him, already have a top 10 portal class. So you got Lenora Sellers in Columbia too. I think KJ is going to ultimately land at Miami or UCF. Those are the two schools that I'm looking at. Maybe TCU being a third option to rejoin Kendall Bryles, his former OC at Arkansas. But I think KJ is going to be a difference maker next year. I don't see him as a guy who can elevate a program to to playoff status, however. And I think those in KJ's camp might maybe think that his ceiling is, you know, Cam Ward, $1.8 to $2 million. If he's asking for that, he's going to be in the portal for a long time. KJ comes to UCF, uh, open door policy. I'll get him an extra key. He can come stay at my house. No problem whatsoever. Uh, I, I do still love KJ, despite the fact that this year, the way that it played out, it was it was so tough to watch. It was brutal. And he, his value is definitely down from where it was uh, at this time a year ago. South Carolina going to add a quarterback. I know Robbie Ashford, that's, that's the one that's been kind of rumored. And if not, man, it feels like Shane Beamer's future is going to be really tied to Lenore Sellers and whether or not this works. What what's South Carolina going to end up doing? Who's QB one going to be uh, when Week One rolls around? Yeah, USC quarterback Malachi Nelson hasn't announced where he's going to visit in January. I think the Gamecocks are trying to get him on campus. Robbie Ashford's a guy they're trying to get on campus too because he fits Dow Loggins' RPO heavy run base set. 
I mentioned a few weeks ago, Connor, that I think the South Carolina offense in 24 is going to look a lot like the Arkansas offense did in 22. Now, Dow Loggins was a tight ends coach then. He didn't call plays, but he certainly had a hand in the game planning, and he's the OC now in Columbia. I think Lenora Sellers is going to be QB1. I think Shane Beamer will announce that early in the spring. I do expect them to sign a portal guy, but I, I don't think it's going to be a starter-level quarterback option. There's not a ton of those left in the portal. South Carolina's NIL right now. They still need to sign a wide receiver one. They're going to have some some guys on campus in January where they're trying to fill out that wide receiver room. That That's the more uh, pressing question right now, who's going to catch passes from Lenora Sellers. But as you mentioned, I think Shane Beamer knows that his future is in a redshirt freshman quarterback next season. And if Lenora Sellers is not the guy, you can just add him to the list of four-star busts the Gamecocks have signed over the last, you know, six or seven recruiting cycles. So quarterbacks right now at South Carolina are Lenora Sellers, Dante Reno, a true freshman who's on scholarship. And then you've got Luke Doty at wide receiver, who's, I guess, quarterback two or three in an emergency situation. So no doubt they have to add another body there. What's the pressure like on Beamer after the year that was? And I know, you know, you get those three November wins, you get a chance to play football eligibility against Clemson, but uh, what what's his his? I, I hate using the the hot seat phrase, but what what exactly do you think uh, it's like internally with within that South Carolina administration after the year that was? Yeah, if I'm a guy at South Carolina who signs Shane Beamer's checks, I'm not necessarily listening to the fan base right now because, um, you know the the OC Dow Loggins, his contract expires December 31st, 2024. Clayton White, the D.C., his contract expired December 31st, 2024. Coordinators have to play well next season. Injuries really killed South Carolina a lot. You know, they had three new starters up front on the O-line, um, had a converted wide receiver as a starting tailback. That that didn't pan out. You lost Juice Wells in September for essentially the season. So a lot of bad things happened for Shane Beamer this year. But if they go – you know, three and nine, four and eight next year, that that's going to really hurt his future. Um, but I tell Gamecock fans this all the time. If you want a coaching change, you got to stop showing up to games. And they still have almost sellouts every Saturday, um, despite, you know, being a 500-level program right now in the SEC under Shane Beamer. I, I haven't pulled the plug yet on, on this coaching regime. And if I'm Ray Tanner, the guy that ultimately chose Shane Beamer as head coach, I'm probably looking at maybe the um, end of the 2024 season, beginning of 2025, before I'm really reassessing, okay, where we go from here as a program and if Shane Beamer is the right guy or not. Yeah, it's it's complicated because you you look at what he's able to do with a, a roster that that did not necessarily look like it was going to be ready to go go to a bowl game in year one, the things that they did at the end of year two. And so it's like, all right, one bad year, all of a sudden that changes the entire trajectory. Like in some ways, yes, maybe it does. And then in others, he could just hop, you know, get right back to being, you know, seven, eight win team. And South Carolina is in a much different place next year. And we're not talking about hot seat stuff. Uh, just a lot of factors will, will impact that. What happens first? You go clean shaven for an entire football season or Dabo actually embraces the portal? Ooh, man, that's tough. Um I don't go uh, clean shaven too often, man. I'm I'm gonna go with Dabo and to to Dabo's defense. I I tweeted a few weeks ago that you know Clemson and Ohio State are the only two top twenty five programs right now 
without a portal commit. And probably 30 Clemson fans commented, but we've had seven portal you know, transfers on campus. They just haven't signed. And then Dabo reiterated that fact a few days later. They, they have tried to recruit guys from the portal to sign with Clemson, but for whatever reason, no one's going to Death Valley right now. And um, that's, a, that's a pressing issue. I think it's a big reason why that once Nick Saban leaves Bama, Dabo maybe not be at the top of that priority list for Crimson Tide anymore. You have to be able to recruit the portal in 2024 and beyond in college football. Dabo Sweeney right now is not doing a very good job of that. Isn't it, just, isn't it pretty simple? Despite all the resources they've actually put into NIL, isn't it just – doesn't it feel like they have just said, hey, we're going to invest in, in the high school guys. We're, we're going to go that route. And I know, look, from what I heard about the Trevor Etienne sweepstakes, they were in on that. They, they were trying to, to be able to make a push to, to get him on board, and that would have made a lot of sense. Obviously, the family ties, all those different things. But, like, isn't it just as simple as, hey, if you want to actually have success in the portal, if you want to truly embrace it, you've got to up those checks. And those checks that are going to the high school guys, you've got to be able to deviate – a little bit unless or or else you're just going to be in the same exact spot. Is it as simple as that? Dabo Sweeney has this sort of uh, stubborn mentality to him. Hey, I've won two national titles. I've I've won a litany of ACC championships. I can still develop players that I reach out to in ninth grade. And then, you know, three years later, they they sign with me. Those guys are part of my program. He he has this uh, thing about him where. You know, he doesn't want to bring in a Keon Coleman from Michigan State. You saw what kind of impact he had at FSU this year. Clemson would have been light years better offensively had they had one or two studs at receiver. You know, they don't they don't have the bodies they used to have and and the freakish talent. So yeah, if if I'm Dabo Sweeney, I've already done the first priority, which was to hire a new OC and and they got Garrett Riley. And the offense was better this season, but Right now, man, they, they still have some positions that need to be filled in the portal, and he has swung and missed at several options. Last one for you. Over under one and a half more seasons for Mac Brown uh, before he just ultimately calls it a career for good this time. I, you know what? I I hate to throw coaches under the bus. I might I might need some sources in Chapel Hill later in my career, but he's a fraud right now because he's had two of the program's best quarterbacks in school history, and he's relatively, you know, a few games over 500. Four straight bowl losses. Tar Heels recruit the state of North Carolina better than any program here, yet they can't beat NC State. Two years ago, NC State brought a third-team quarterback into Chapel Hill, and Drake May and the Tar Heels couldn't finish the job. This year they got blown off the field, and Raleigh by NC State now has sort of ascended. So UNC has so much money and resources it can devote to football, but it just just does not win big. And the ACC is a perfect opportunity right now before they leave the ACC to to win something, and they just can't do it. Um, I know the powers that be in Chapel Hill, the deep-pocketed boosters, no longer want Mac Brown. Mac Brown wants to be there, and I think 2024 is probably his last season. I appreciate the fact that you gave a negative Mac Brown answer and did not say anything negative about Gene Chizik. That's that's all I was really looking for in, in that spot. Um, the buck stops with Mac. I mean, you know, it's true. That's true. Yeah, the the fraud Mac, Mac being called a fraud. I have I haven't heard you say that before. That one that one was new. That uh, look, it's it's tough to argue against though. You're exactly right. I mean, the, the talent that they've had a quarterback and to to look at the seasons that they've had. It, 
it does probably have to feel like this has been an opportunity lost in it almost an East coast way of what Lincoln Riley has done with the quarterback talent that he's had. And the fact that they haven't been able to get over the hump. And they don't play a litany of ranked teams every week in the ACC. They play two or three big games a year and UNC always manages to lose those last three years, Connor from November 1st onward, UNC is six and 10. They started out six and zero this year, fell out of the top 25. They can't win a bowl game. They can't beat their in-state rival NC state. And then those, Swing games like the trips to Clemson, they can't win those games either. Brutal, brutal. Brad, uh, you're the best man. Really appreciate it. I'll let you get back to playing some zone defense at home. Good to see you, man. All right. I know I've talked about it a lot, but betting the Bulls, if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to those episodes. Even if you're a sicko and you just want to hear how wrong we were about certain games, we've recorded three episodes already. We did the power five non-new year six bowls we did the non-playoff new year six bowls and then we did the most recent episode was the two playoff uh games where we talked about all the different gambling angles that that go into that um and had a lot of fun those episodes you can find them on our youtube channel as well saturday down south on youtube um but great stuff uh, from from Marler, from Bob Winkle, who wasn't on this most recent one, but he's going to be rejoining us uh, next week for our national championship preview. So we'll have one more of those episodes that's going to come out if you're looking for additional content. We've been doing three pods a week, essentially, during bowl season, um, which kind of leads me to um, what I wanted to talk about here as we get ready for uh, the, I don't we can call it the offseason. Let's just call it the offseason. I'm not going to avoid mm-hmm. it. We're going to try and get back to a little bit more of the the figuring out bold and brash type stuff. Maybe a little bit of what was I thinking? I We have some ideas that we need to be able to work through. But if you've noticed, we've been kind of putting those putting those off during the season just because I feel like there's been so much other stuff to be able to talk about. We've still done lot of the week, which I love being able to do. But I, I haven't been just ignoring people who listen to the show. I want to have you know, listener interaction and all that stuff. And we're going to find some creative ways to do that. To be 100% honest, Will and I both kind of got to a point with figuring it out where we wondered, have we have we done not everything that we can do, but do we feel like we're at a little bit of a dry place with this? Is it Does mm-hmm. it feel like we've kind of talked about a lot of these different subjects? We don't want to repeat ourselves. And so that's why we've kind of, you know, put that on the back burner during the season. But we will get back to some content like that to be able to close out episodes and some fun things that, Lots to show our personalities as well. So I don't want people thinking that that I'm just ignoring listeners or, or anything like that. I I appreciate everybody that's been listening as we close out this 2023 year. This is the last podcast that we will record in 2023 officially. The next time that we are talking to you guys, it'll be 2024 after these bowl games have concluded. That pod will be next Tuesday that we're going to record that's going to come out. But I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to everybody that's been riding with us. Uh, it's been a lot of fun this year and I, I really appreciate the fact that so many people will listen to this and will, will text me about something that, that was said on an episode or something like that, or, or, or will reach out and say nice things about the pod. It, it just, even if I'm, I, I'm admittedly not the best person when it comes to responding to that stuff and, and always being fully aware, just know that, that I appreciate it because we've put a lot of time and effort into this. I mean, for goodness gracious, for goodness sakes, like we'll put it his mic in his bag to go to Italy to, to record this podcast. So we, we do appreciate everybody that that's been riding with us and, and to be a hundred percent honest, 
I feel like other people try and do what we do and I feel like we do it better than them. I, I, I love that, that you're still here listening to this. It's still listening to us, despite the fact that we're trying to, to try out some different things. We want to adapt. We don't want to die. And we're going to continue to try and do that. We will maybe have a couple of different things in the works for this off season for next season that we're going to try out, not going to necessarily recreate the wheel or anything like that, but could be some new things in the works that, that I'm pushing for that. Hopefully I'll be able to, to make everybody more aware of, but I need to be able to talk to talk to the bosses and see kind of what the plan is and see if we can get the kind of support that I'd be looking for to do what exactly I want to do, because I, I want to continue to adapt and continue to do new things with this. But yeah, thank you to everybody who's listened during this 2023 year. Well, thank you to you for being a, a loyal, a loyal, um, reliable, what's, what's, what are other adjectives I can come up with? Just my partner in crime. And I appreciate it, man. I really do. Yeah, no, that, that means the world to me, man. Just knowing how much you put into it and everything. I mean, it just comes down to like, I love college football. I know you love college football too. And I think that, uh, you know, the game has, and we've talked about it a little bit, you know, it's almost been taken out of people like us, like taken out of people like our, our hands and put in, you know, TV and everything. And, and I, I will say this too, you know, this is our last traditional bowl season. So like, uh, you know, they said in Billy Madison, you know, cherish it. You know, this is the one that when we talk about this to our kids, this is the last one that we remember. And so it's been cool. It's lessened the sting to be able to talk about all this stuff with you. And no, I really, really, I mean, this has been the most fun. I mean, well, okay, let's be honest. 2019 was the most fun I ever had as a college football fan. But every year since then has been, you know, right there and considering how horrible LSU has been they would have been some of my worst years like of those you know, 2020 2021 so yeah it, it's been an absolute joy and I mean yeah same thing as you're saying you know to the listeners like it's it's been super fun to kind of close out this era of college football and be able to all talk to you guys I love that you guys have reached out I've gotten to know a lot of you guys on a personal level and uh yeah this whole thing you know has been been a dream come true so um we'll see y'all in 2024 and uh happy uh happy portal hunting happy new year and uh we'll still be there uh no matter how many teams they want to put in that playoff stay here stay as long as you can <laughs> stay as cherish it <laughs> i need to watch billy madison that's what i need to do a lot of billy madison mm-hmm. references that i've had in my life that have made me just go man i need to go back and watch that all right, if you haven't, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Beat. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS Pod, at Set Down South, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk to you in 2024.